When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and we study scripture here. So I hope you're ready for the ride. Uh, before we get into this week's material, which is magnificent, I did want to give one more shout out. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but in case you missed it, there is a new Unshaken Saints Instagram page that's amazing. And I can say that because I don't deserve any credit for it. Uh, some amazing friends of mine with far more creativity and artistic talent than I could ever dream of, well, maybe in the resurrection. But this side of the resurrection, there's no way I can, I can compare to what these amazing friends do, who are willing to sift through the massive amount of content that's on Unshaken and, and find the diamonds in the rough and to make little video shorts or to make uh, printout printables and, and visual aids that you can use in teaching your children or your church classes. It really is amazing stuff. I knew they were good, but the more that I've seen what they've created, it's so just beautiful, visually appealing and, and takes my long windedness uh, and allows the, the, the wind breath spirit to remain without all of the length. And so great thanks to them and anyone who wants to go check it out, just look for Unshaken Saints on Instagram. Uh, it's been beautiful to see some of your comments about that. Just how grateful you are to these wonderful friends of ours uh, who are making, making things more accessible uh, and more helpful. So, so bless all of you uh, for your desire to, to dive deep into the Word of God. And, and I'm just grateful for the chance to be able to do it with you. Okay. Now, what we're going to be doing today and next week is in some ways really intimidating for me as a teacher. And I pray for more wind and breath and spirit these next two weeks because we're gonna be studying the Sermon on the Mount. I've said this before that often when I'm in a classroom teaching my students scripture, those are the two audiences that I'm most focused on, my students and the scriptures. Namely, whoever originally wrote what we find on the page. I try to envision them in the back of the room observing the teaching of their material. And if, I, in my mind's eye, I see them rolling their eyes at what I'm trying to do, then I know I'm not sufficiently true to the text. Meanwhile, if I see my students sitting in front of them rolling their eyes, I might have shifted to be too textual and not sufficiently student-centered. In other words, there needs to be a balance, we're proving contraries here in our scripture study and our teaching, between what the prophetic writer intended and what the student in front of you needs. And if you can keep an eye on both, then hopefully we'll be able to meet students' needs and find relevance in Scripture without doing damage to their original intent. It's a fine line, okay? But I've often done that with Nephi looking on or Jeremiah looking on or Esther looking on or just all of these incredible people of Scripture. But since these next two weeks we are learning from the Savior himself, it's Jesus sitting in the back of the room. And first of all, that should be an honor for all of us in the room anywhere else, that we get to learn his words today. It's not someone else 
trying to teach the Savior's gospel. Uh, and it's not just storyline of people trying successfully or unsuccessfully to live it. This is the chance to give the microphone directly to Jesus and let him teach what is arguably the greatest sermon ever given. But to have him looking on from the back, staring over the heads of students that he absolutely loves. I pray that we can do justice to, to what he's trying to convey. I, I hope he doesn't roll any eyes. I hope instead he infuses what we'll talk about with his power, because these are his words and his message, like I said, to students that he loves. Uh, it's an honor to be able to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but especially when they're the words of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what we'll get for these next two days. This is Matthew chapter 5 this week, and then 6 and 7 next week. Luke has his own version of what Jesus taught. Uh, we call what Matthew recorded the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we call what Luke recorded the Sermon on the Plain. And we'll see the difference between Mount and Plain as we get into, into them. Uh, what we'll see from the Luke version is found in Luke chapter 6. And we'll only get a little of it today, and we'll get some more of it next week. Uh, but some interesting things that Luke remembered uh, that, that Matthew did not. Uh, and speaking of Matthew, it's interesting to see if he's the Jew writing to fellow Jews and in some ways organizing the life of Christ on kind of a, a Torah model, the five books of, of the Torah. Uh, then there, we were seeing five discourses, and this is numero uno. This is the first and foremost, the longest and deepest of the five. Uh, in some ways, a mount would be perfect then for the placement, location, because we're seeing Jesus as, as Moses 2.0 as that prophet that Moses said would someday come like unto him. And here he has now come. And if Moses led the children of Israel through the Jordan River, we saw that, excuse me, through the Red Sea, I should say, and to the Jordan River, we see that in Jesus' baptism back in Matthew chapter 5, as he passes through the Jordan himself and is immersed. Uh, we see the wilderness wanderings, wander, wander, die, wander, die. Well, in Christ's case, it was no die, but it was 40 days of purification and preparation in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. Uh, so there's that version. That's Exodus 2.0 in the book of, of, of Matthew. And then what, and chronology is not, not perfect here, but in the midst of all of that, Moses comes down from a mount with the law of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This Sermon on the Mount is the highest and holiest version of, of the Ten Commandments and all that they're meant to convey. What the Savior is teaching here is, it's meant to go from the stone tablets to the fleshy tables of the heart. And I pray he writes upon us with his own hand. It's interesting, as a, as a student of American religious history, one of the greatest sermons ever given in, in American history is Jonathan Edwards' famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it is an intense call to repentance. Uh, when he first gave it, he couldn't get through the whole thing because people were shrieking and moaning and fainting in the aisles of the chapel. And it wasn't because of his charisma. He didn't have any. He was not exactly a people person. He was more of a deep thinker. And he was kind of monotone. 
Yeah, he was not performing things from the pulpit. He'd just kind of read very basic, simple, monotone. He didn't even want to make eye contact with his parishioners because he was nervous about that. So he'd stare at the knot on the, on the rope that you'd use to ring the bell. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't shock and awe drama as far as presentation was concerned. But it was shock and awe, horrors of hell because of the imagery that he invoked. It was a powerful call to repentance. And people, people repented. Well, by way of comparison, the Sermon on the Mount is not hellfire and brimstone. It's not scaring people into change. Rather, it is, well, it's still a call to repentance. But it is one where the justice of God is so infused with mercy and grace, since it's grace for grace personified that's giving it, you can't help but feel a desire to come unto its, its source, its preacher, to be taught something so far above you, but then have a desire to climb and ascend this mount with the Lord himself, knowing that he can get you to the top. Now, what's the top in all of this? The climax of Matthew chapter 5 is that famous verse that either inspires us or haunts us, depending on our approach to it. The last verse of Matthew 5 is this one, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And that call to perfection, whew, it's a tall order for us mere mortals. And like I said, it either inspires us, like I can improve, I can get better, or it, it devastates us with a sense of toxic perfectionism, like I'm always falling short and I always will. There's this interesting fine line. Some, uh, especially within evangelical communities, they look at this sermon, and especially its end of the end of chapter 5, that call to perfection, as the impossible dream. And because it's impossible, just recognize the impossibility, know that you'll never get anywhere near it, so just trust in Jesus. Now, that's good counsel to a point. Yeah, we do need to trust in Jesus for every step of the way, but it's not merely a pipe dream that we'll never achieve. We'll never achieve it in this life, and we'll talk more about that when we get to that final verse at the end of this week's lesson. But as far as the trajectory we set for eternity, that to me is always, I did, I did long jump and, and, and triple jump and high jump in, in high school track. And the interesting thing about a long jump is if you were to take a picture of someone right after they leave, after, after they, after they leave the ground, okay, they've gotten to that point and they jump and take a, a still frame photograph. You have, for first, they're not very far at all. They're not very high. And you think, wow, if that's where we grade this person, they've covered what, two inches? Not much of a world record there. But God doesn't take still frame photographs. He lets the, the camera roll. And if you will allow for the continued progress of that jump, what you just saw in that initial freeze frame was their freezing momentum and trajectory. And with all of the sprinting that preceded the leap, there's momentum. And then just dipping those hips and launching off as forward and upward as you can. There's the trajectory. Now, of course, gravity is going to bring you back down the earth, to the earth. And that's where you hit the sand. And that's what they're going to measure. The final result of all the momentum and trajectory that you could muster. 
to grade ourselves by the freeze frame of right now. Even the freeze frame of death, that is not the, mo- the, po- the point, the, the moment of final judgment. And so to me, to see what the Lord is inviting us to do, we are building momentum through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and with that momentum, as we establish our spiritual trajectory, as high as we can, can dream, aiming for perfection, knowing that we will not reach it in this life, and yet with that, mo- that mortal momentum, with that spiritual trajectory, death comes and on to the eternities of eternal progression. No gravity bringing us back down to earth. That's, where, that's how we can ultimately achieve the perfection the Lord intends for us. And it's not on us. It's not our works that save us. Christ is running alongside us every step of the way and helping us build the, moment, the necessary momentum and establish the necessary trajectory so that he can then continue lifting us upward and onward until we reach that perfection, his perfection, perfection in him. In fact, that's really the goal. Put it in, I'll put it in these terms, and it's a bit of a scripture chain if you want to put some cross-references down on your page. The first one is that one at the end of Matthew 5. Be perfect. That's what he's asking for. The second one, though, then, and this helps clarify that this is not simply some kind of uh, impossibility that the Lord has set us up for failure. Uh, No, he sets us up for success, but it's success through him. So second verse in the scripture chain is one that we all know well. 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 7. And in 1 Nephi 3, 7, what does Nephi learn and know and testify of about a commandment that he'd been given that to his, his brothers at least seemed impossible? He said to his father, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. You see, I know this isn't your desire for us, Dad. This is the Lord's commandment. And this was the Lord's commandment in Matthew 5, 48. It's coming from him, okay? So I'll do those things. And here's why. For I know that the Lord, or I should say, here's how. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. Keep those two verses hand in hand. That if the Lord is commanding us to be perfect, as perfect as his Father in heaven himself, then the Lord will give no commandment, save he prepares a way for its accomplishment. Now, what way is that? Here's the third verse to add to your chain. John 14, 6, where the Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, or in this case, the Father's perfection, but by me. So be perfect. I'll provide the way. I am the way. So come unto me and I will perfect you. As perfect as the Father is. In fact, that's the culmination, the climax of the Book of Mormon. And so the fourth and final verse in our scripture chain is the end of Moroni, chapter 10. Look at verse 32. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness and if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love god with all your might mind and strength then is his grace sufficient for you that by his grace ye may be perfect in christ and if by the grace of god ye are perfect in christ ye can in no wise deny the power of god You can't deny God's power because you know it was God's power that got you there. Not you 
lifting yourself up by your bootstraps. We, we can't do it. Uh, but Christ can, and Christ does, and Christ will, if we'll simply let him. Don't, don't ever, ever think of Matthew 5.48 independent of Jesus, the person who gave the command in the first place. And if our, if, if our plan, if our trajectory is to, to be, achieve that level of perfection, know that it's perfection in Christ. To be perfected, which means there were some rough edges to rub off. <laughs> there was some polishing. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And there was some finishing needed, a whole lot of it. Christ is in for the duration until we get there. And so that ED at the end of perfect, perfected, is the most merciful past participle you'll ever find in the grammar of God. Look to him. And as we do exactly that in Matthew chapter 5, I pray that you'll not just see on the page, but rather you'll feel in your heart the grace of God flowing into you. A grace which which Moroni tells us is sufficient to perfect even you and me. So let's watch that unfold. Now, like I said, we're going to be spending our time in Matthew for the bulk of this week and next with some hints from Luke as they come along. Uh, In the Matthew version, Matthew 5 comes right on the heels of what we saw last week in Matthew 4 about the temptations of Jesus. We see it after the calling of Simon, Andrew, James, and John, the fishermen, to be fishers of men. And then Jesus goes and begins those great three verbs of preaching, teaching, and healing. Okay, and there, the ultimate preaching and healing is about to take place here as Jesus teaches this Sermon on the Mount. In the Luke version, by the time you get to chapter 6, where this Sermon on the Plain comes in, you see all that we saw in Matthew, plus Christ's messianic announcement at the synagogue in Nazareth, several more miracles that Matthew does not bring up until later. And so we'll study all those miracles in the, in the Matthew account as we get there in a couple of weeks. You also see Jesus talking with the Pharisees about law, the law of Moses, uh, and that's an ongoing conversation we'll see throughout the entire Gospels. We'll see a, a huge portion of today's material, this week's material, about the law. And so think of that, as far as Luke's context is concerned, that's a conversation that's already begun. And so if there's any Pharisees in the audience, their ears are going to perk up as Jesus talks about the law and how he intends people to fulfill it. One other thing that happens here is 12 apostles, according to the Luke account, Jesus has already chosen 12 apostles from among the disciples. And we learn their names in Luke, uh, and it's on the, in the aftermath of that that Jesus then teaches these multitudes the sermon. In the Matthew version, the disciples are all there, but the apostles have not yet been designated. As far as which of those two chronologies is more accurate, I'd probably give it to to Luke. Uh, Matthew's version has some different purposes. And so he's a little looser with the chronology in order to to organize things around a a mosaic kind of pattern. Okay, Uh, But I do love what what Matthew's going to give us uh, because his account is by far the fullest version of what Jesus will teach. One other thing here from Luke's account before we dive straight into Matthew. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And here's the immediate context. Jesus has gone up into a mountain to pray. He chooses his 12 apostles. And then here's the setting for the sermon. And he came down with them and stood in the plain. Now think about this. He came down with 
How do you say come down in a single word? Descend. And what's the word with in Spanish, in Romance languages? Con. And so you have a condescension right here. Jesus has gone up to be with the Father. He's climbed this mountain. But then he comes down with his disciples, comes down to be with us at our mortal level, so far removed from the perfection he's aiming for and trying to help us ascend to. But the condescension of Christ coming down to teach us the way, and better yet, to show us the way. He's willing to stand in our personal plane. As low as it might feel to us. A plane... It made me think of Spencer W. Kimball's famous words, that we have paused on some plateaus long enough. And if we are, if we've grown a little complacent here on our worldly planes, you ready to climb? I'm grateful Jesus came down to be at our level, but he came down to help us come back up to his. So let's see what he says. Luke goes on. He's in the company of his disciples. That I hope we're included in that number. And a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem. Now that's a Jewish audience. But keep going since Luke is the one writing to, uh, to us here. And Luke was the Gentile aiming at fellow Gentiles. So yes, the great multitude consists of people from Judea and Jerusalem. And from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Oh, outside the borders of Israel. Now we are including a Gentile audience, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And like we saw in those beautiful verbs of teaching, preaching, healing, here we see the same thing. To hear him is to be healed by him. And Christ's message is the best medicine. If you are poor in spirit, if you're mourning over mistakes you've made or over the circumstances in which you find yourself, then I pray that this sermon that you hear will heal you. Luke then tells us this in chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And thus the sermon begins with the Beatitudes, just like we'll see in the book of Matthew. But before we jump into that, pause here and realize what, how the sermon is supposed to begin. The pre-sermon, the preparation for this preaching. Are you vexed? then feel my virtue. Let my virtue flow out of me, Jesus is saying here. We'll see that happen dramatically with the woman and the issue of blood. But to see this in a preaching, teaching context, that his virtue is coming out of him. I feel that sometimes in my own teaching and just wanting to flex every spiritual muscle and hope that spirit and truth come out of my mouth and not just breath and wind. It has to be infused with the Spirit of God and for Christ's virtue to flow out of him. With every word, that's what we're looking to experience in this sermon. But also those that are vexed are healed before the sermon begins so that they can actually 
listen to the sermon with an untroubled heart. I looked up the, the original Greek word for vexed there. Yeah, that was a burning bush to me this time. Uh, and again, anytime that you're studying scripture and you see a word that just capture, captures your attention or piques your curiosity, pause, turn aside to see, look things up. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek to do it. Uh, there'll be, there's wonderful dictionaries online and lexicons and just help. But to, I looked up vexed because that struck me. They're vexed with unclean spirits. And the word itself can mean disturbed. It can mean troubled. It can mean annoyed. What's interesting is it actually comes from a, 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 a Greek word that's hardly ever used in the New Testament. And it comes from uh, a combination of words that literally mean in a crowd. Now, literally, they were in a crowd. It's a massive multitude of Jews and Gentiles all coming together, clamoring to hear from Christ. But what's interesting of this in a crowd, it's think about that happening in your mind. Isn't that not the, the perfect description of being vexed by a million thoughts and all kinds of worries that are pulling your mind in a million different directions? Imagine being in a mosh pit at a dance. Imagine being in the hallway of junior high during passing period. And you just hope you're not get, about to get trash canned or stuffed in a locker somewhere. But you are jostled and bounced around like a pinball. And it's not totally up to you, especially you, you small seventh graders. Now, mentally, so often that's how it feels as we approach the Word of God or a temple session or a church sacrament meeting, times of worship. And our worries get in the way of that worship all too frequently because we are vexed. Whether it's with an unclean spirit or just a massive to-do list that we're never going to be able to finish? Are we vexed by feelings of inadequacy or unworthiness? Are we, do we just have too much else going on in our mind to be able to be still and know that He is God? My challenge to all of us is whenever we are, are vexed by demons of distraction, then before the lesson begins, pray that the Lord will touch you before he begins to teach you. Pray that his virtue will offset your vexation and that you will have a calm mind replacing a troubled one so calmly and quietly you can hear his words, feel his spirit, and be changed by them. I've warned my own students about this, that sometimes we expect ourselves to go spiritually from zero to 60 in like two seconds flat. And we open our scriptures and expect to be able to dive straight in and have the veil part and the angels sing from the very first letter. I don't know about you, that's typically not the case for me. It takes some warm up. Any Anyone running down the, the track, there's some warm-up laps that precede it. There's, there's some stretching, some calisthenics. And if we're willing to do that anytime we are, are beginning a worshipful experience, it's one of the reasons that we pray before we study. Or maybe we need to listen to beautiful, uplifting music first. Maybe we need to go on a walk and just calm our minds in the beauty, the beauty of nature.
whatever it takes for you to get ready for the lesson that's about to come. When I first was trained to be a seminary teacher, the word readiness was on our minds frequently. And what can we do as a teacher to help our students get ready? Whether it's a story or a picture or music or a joke or whatever it might be, something that builds momentum before the message begins. Well, if, if we as teachers were taught to look for readiness types of opportunities, then we as students how can bring so much of that to the table to begin. Are we ready for this? Are we ready for the Sermon on the Mount? Are we prepared for it? I pray that we are. Because Jesus is about to begin. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and there, just as with Luke, the Beatitudes begin. But notice the difference here. And to me, I'm so grateful for, I would call it a discrepancy if you want. To me, in some ways, it's simply... Oh, two facets of this diamond. Is it down on the plain or is it up on the mountain? Oh, yes. Because Jesus is willing to meet us in the plain and then bring us to the mountain. He condescends to our level, brings down his glorious message of perfection, and then perfects us in him through the rest of our lives. You ready to climb the mountain with me? Let's ascend together. So, the multitudes. He's up in the mountain beckoning us to follow. He is set. And that, to me, is a fascinating word as well. We sometimes say set in our ways as a bad thing. But to be set spiritually, to be secure. I mean, seriously, if you're climbing a mountain. Uh, this just happened the other day. We were out in the snow. Uh, and I was trying to help my wife climb up a step. And little did I realize, I was not set myself. And so as, as soon as I grabbed her hand, instead of her coming up, I came down. Uh, not, not very wise of me. And so I'm not saying that we have to have reached perfection before we begin to preach, because otherwise we'll never start the lesson. But to be set spiritually in a place where we feel we're secure enough to reach and help other people ascend as well. Harold B. Lee used to talk about that, to lift people to a higher place you got to be on a higher place yourself. And though we're not perfect by any stretch, can we set ourselves more securely? It actually makes me think of that beautiful verse in Doctrine and Covenant, section 11 to Hiram Smith. Before you seek to declare the word, seek to obtain the word, and then your tongue will be loosed. Learn as much as you can. Study. Work to become. Trust in Jesus. Follow him, and others will then better be able to follow you. There's another thing here, though, about setting. The JST actually says set down. And the Greek would suggest a sitting posture, as far as Jesus is concerned. And like we saw in the synagogue in Nazareth, you stand to give the word of God and then sit to be able to discuss it. And in Christ's case, he could have been standing the whole time. But there is the, the, the typical Jewish posture in those days to sit and, and study. To get comfortable. We'll see that when Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes. Sit in some, find some good green grass. We're going to be here for a while. Get comfortable so that you can learn without vexing distractions. But also there's something about, from our perspective, sitting down is so much more informal than standing up. 
as a teacher, there have been times where the best teaching occurs when I'm not the, the sage on the stage, as they say, but the guide on the side. When I'm sitting down so that I'm literally on the same level as my students. And I don't know, there's this certain informality that comes. I actually joked with several classes as I've sat down and go, today we just need to be on the same page. I want to understand where you guys are coming from on this. Uh, I'm not coming from a higher position of authority. Uh, I need you to teach me and understand where you're coming from on certain issues. So we can wrestle with some of the things that the Lord is, is asking of us. I've actually even noticed that in some classes, we give the, we have an amazing lesson, a good experience in class, the closing prayer occurs, and then students want to just kind of linger. And so I just come over and it's these small groups and we end up having a discussion that was so much better than anything that happened in class. And I laugh sometimes and I say to the students, hey guys, where was that? Like during the hour we had, how come you guys were so much more vocal and willing to share and vulnerable and open after the closing prayer? And it's this weird sort of, well, I don't know. It just feels like this is, we can be ourselves now. The class was kind of your time and this is our time, but we still have some questions and we want to just, I don't know. And I'm like, I actually remember one class going, I brought that up explain that strange phenomenon, and the students all kind of got it, like, yeah, we, we do do that, don't we? And I said, what if we called our opening prayer the closing prayer? And then let the next hour, where we can actually be together studying Scripture, have that kind of post-class informality, where everybody's comfortable being themselves and just giving their perspective on stuff. Can we make it feel like this is our closing prayer, and then enjoy class? Do I need to sit down with you? in just small groups or around a circle somewhere? Do we need to leave the classroom and go out, I don't know, in the atrium somewhere? Uh, go sit down on a blanket underneath the tree? Go find a mountain to climb and just chat on the hike? I love that Jesus, whether it's the Jewish version or, or our more modern version of informality, I love that he just wants to sit. Sit a spell and let's talk as teachers and as parents especially, we need to take advantage of all of the informal moments of instruction. Actually, not even instruction. That's still too formal. Of conversation. And if we can help our conversation partner feel comfortable in that kind of way, oh, the heart will begin to open and truth will seep through. The best youth interview I ever gave with an inactive young woman was when I went to her house and noticed that their chain link fence was broken in all kinds of places. And as a high school kid start trying to earn money for my mission, I worked on a chain link fence crew. And so I asked her with the mother's permission, uh, can you go out with me and show me some of the spots on the fence that we can, I'll show you how to fix it yourself. And she was excited about that. And little did she know that was the youth interview. And I made a, a point of not looking her in the eye very often and of interrupting the, our conversation to ask things about chain link fence just so it wouldn't feel like we were going too, too much into personal kinds of things. And it was just, it felt so casual and she felt so free to be herself and open up and share what she was going through and where she was coming from and I could share some insights and things and that was a glorious experience. Because in some ways I was sitting down instead of standing up. Teachers, leaders, parents, 
some good things can happen if we sit. One other phrase here worth mentioning is when it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. In some ways, that's really redundant, isn't it? Of course, if you're going to teach, you better open your mouth first. Well, not necessarily. You probably heard this old saying, always share the gospel and when necessary, use words. Jesus never stopped teaching. This time, he just happened to use an open mouth to do it. Uh, and we, we should always be sharing the gospel. We should always be teaching truth. And on occasion, we should use words to do it. I actually had a seminary student, super shy little girl, uh, wonderful soul, but incredibly kind of socially anxious. And at one point, she had the courage to raise her hand. We were talking about bearing testimony. And she raised her hand and she said, uh, I think this is the only time she ever spoke in class. She said, does that mean we have to like give our testimony like verbally in church and like in fast and testimony meeting? You could tell she wanted the answer to be no. And as one who loves my students and, and doesn't want to uh, hurt feelings or scare them, I was as reassuring as I could that there are more ways than one to bear testimony. That living the life of discipleship is a testimony. In 3rd Nephi, taking the sacrament is a testimony. There's so many ways you can bear your testimony. And you can just feel her starting to relax. Like, it's okay. I never have to go up there and use I don't. I don't have to open my mouth. And then it was the weirdest thing for me as a teacher. Doing, trying to be as gentle as I could for her sake. And I felt so clearly the Spirit saying, no. That's good advice on some occasions. And she needs to know that's okay. But <laughs> she needs to bear her testimony verbally as well. And it was the weirdest thing. And so all of a sudden I found myself going, actually, yeah, there are times where you do need to get up and bear your testimony. And she was like, oh, I like the first half better. I'm like, yeah, I know you would. Sorry. Uh, but open your mouth. Let it be filled and teach. And what does he teach? He teaches the Beatitudes first. From verse 3 through verse 12. And Beatitude comes from a, a word meaning blessed. And that's how all of these begin. So he begins with blessedness. Here's the positive coming before any kind of constructive criticism. Before any, and it's not going to be negative when it comes from Jesus, but gentle calls to repent. Even gentle ones can be and should be preceded by what we see that is positive. And here's his first one. Not in King James, but in the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. By inspiration, the prophet reveals... Blessed are they who shall believe on me, which puts everything in the context of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By foregrounding faith, then it's through the eyes of a believer in Christ that I'm going to approach the other things that he's going to teach me here. Okay, So blessed are they who believe on me. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe on your words when ye shall testify that ye have seen me and know that I am. So faith in the direct words of Jesus is wonderful. It's blessed. But even more blessed is if you have sufficient faith to trust in a second-hand witness to start. I'm not saying we end with that. We want our own independent witness ourselves. We want to come unto Christ and learn it directly from Him. But on the way, we typically have to trust in the words of others to start the process. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And who are we hearing? Others who heard him first. No wonder this is important for us to understand. So far removed in time and space from Jesus himself. All we have are the testimonies of others. Matthews and Luke's and so on. 
do we trust them? Because if we are willing to trust one another on the way to gaining an independent witness from God directly, then not only are we connecting ourselves vertically to heaven, but we're connecting ourselves horizontally to one another along the way. And both of those two great commandments are essential as far as the Lord is concerned. So more blessed. It's almost doubting Thomas kind of. You're blessed because you know for yourself. You would have been more blessed if you would have exercised faith along the way, including faith in one another. The JST then goes on. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe on your words and come down in the depth of humility and be baptized in my name, for they shall be visited with fire and the Holy Ghost and shall receive a remission of their sins. This is putting Matthew 5 in the context of Matthew 3, of Jesus' baptism. This is putting the Sermon on the Mount in the context of a climb up the fourth article of faith, of faith and repentance. There's the humility that brings you down to the depths, to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Here it all is. Jesus is calling for a new beginning to prepare us for the second law, the higher law that he's giving us. And if we're worthy to receive it, then blessed are you with every step that follows. Verse 3, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom is coming, right? Repent, for the kingdom of, of God is at hand. This is not the high and mighty that enter. that They lack humility. But those who are poor in spirit, that admit that I'm not already in the kingdom of my own construction, but rather the Lord himself is coming with his kingdom, and I want to be worthy to enter. I am poor in spirit. I don't yet have the kind of spirit that God himself wants to pour out upon me. And so I come. I come to the kingdom. Now, recall, though, that there's, there's something added in, well, I'll put it this way. This is one of those incredible sermons that we not only get a version of in Matthew and a shortened version in Luke, but we get a second witness and a second chance to learn in what we might call the fifth gospel, which is third Nephi. When Christ comes to among, when the resurrected Christ comes among the Nephites, sends there at the temple in Bountiful, that's why the third Nephi version of this is called the sermon at the temple. That puts things in an interesting context too. The, the best place on earth for plains to become mountains is in the house of the Lord, to ascend the mountain of the Lord himself, right? Sermon at the temple, Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of redundant, right? Synonymous. But for Jesus to come there and to teach this all-important, life-changing message to the, the Nephites that were worthy of his coming, ah, that's, there, there's worth a second witness right there. There is an incredible amount of similarity between what we see in Matthew 5, 6, 7 and what we see in 3 Nephi 12, 13, 14. Skeptics jump on the similarities, but avoid making sense or attempting to make sense of the differences. Uh, the similarities to me are easily explained. If, it's, if the sermon's this important, yeah, I'm going to repeat myself. Uh, I do that as a teacher all the time. You probably are aware of that. But uh, the differences are, are enlightening as well. Here's one example of that. And so if you ever have the time to have uh, Matthew 5, 6, 7 in one hand and 3 Nephi 12, 13, 14 in the other and just let your eyes keep bouncing back and forth, it's amazing to see the differences between them. And this is one of those examples. The Nephite version of this says, Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And that's such an important difference. If being poor in spirit in and of itself constituted blessedness, like we've already arrived, like, hey, I'm poor in spirit. Uh, that, that's one, a wonderful preliminary step. That's preparing the soil for the seed to be planted. That's to be in a preparation for the word, as Alma 32 describes it. But it's not getting there. The seed hasn't grown yet. You're poor in spirit. You recognize you need something that you don't yet have. Well, guess who has it? My grace is sufficient for you to be perfected in me. So come, come unto me. And that poverty of spirit will become the riches of my grace as I pour myself out into you. That's what the Lord is offering here and inviting us to do here. Come unto me. If, if mere affliction or tribulation was the, was the source of all blessedness, we'd all have PhDs in spirituality by now because we all suffer. It's what we do with that suffering. It's whether or not we allow it to turn us unto Christ that makes the difference. It then prepares us for the next step, verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again, is that simple mourning? It's just good to, you need a good cry now and then? Well, that, may be, that may be true. But is there a more celestial form of sorrow? Is there a more meaningful mourning that Jesus is hinting at here? You see, if it's mourning with those that mourn, to borrow the language of the baptismal covenant in Mosiah 18, then yes, blessed are you if you mourn with those that mourn. Not only will you be comforted, but more importantly, they will be too. Comforted through your compassion, through your empathy. What if it's mourning in terms of being open to our own humility and mourning that we are not yet all we need to be? The mourning of humility, oh yes, blessed are you for that. In fact, there's a more specific form of that that Paul calls godly sorrow in his letter to the Corinthians. And that to me might be the most important form of mourning in order to be comforted. Because if it's godly sorrow over our sins, then yes, guaranteed, comfort will come as the atonement of Christ sweeps away your guilt and replaces it with joy. If you thought that Matthew's version of this was good, Luke's is even better. Luke's is intensified. And in Luke 6, verse 21, he says, Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. It's more than just comfort. It is true joy. You remember laughter in the Old Testament is Yitzhak, it's Isaac. And when Sarah and all of her sorrow is swept away in a burst of laughter, in a, period, a time of rejoicing, her sorrow was replaced with a son that she named after her own rejoicing laughter. <laughs> I read a book once about Sarah that called her the mother of humor in the Old Testament. The mother of laughter. She's the mother of joy. She named Isaac that. And so if you are mourning now, if you're weeping now, and one of the great things about Luke's version is there's this sense of immediacy. He keeps using the word now and compares it to this suggestion of then, someday. Uh, and to see, yeah, right now might be rough. It might be horrible. What you're going through may be absolutely devastating. 
And I've heard from several of you recently that that describes your current condition to a T. But if you are weeping now, just look to tomorrow. And those tears will become tears of joy. You'll be laughing and wiping your eyes because you just can't keep the joy in. That's a beautiful promise. As my wife and I have sometimes said, when we're in the middle of something really hard, we've sometimes said, someday we're going to laugh about this. And if we're going to laugh about it in the future, we might as well start laughing now. And we try. <laughs> we try. We eventually get there. My wife has an amazing sense of humor. She'd have to to put up with me. Uh, if you think about the verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, about to everything there is a time and a season. You can hear the birds singing in the background, right? Uh, but this one, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The Luke version seems to be a little bit closer to the Ecclesiastes version. And yes, today might be a time to weep, but prepare. The time to laugh is right around the corner. Dance, if you will. Verse 5 then, the next beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So simple, so straightforward, but meekness is so misunderstood. We too often equate meekness with weakness, and it's anything but. If Moses was the meekest of all men in the Old Testament, weakness? That never described him. To understand his power, his strength, but his recognition of the source of that strength. And his willingness, no matter what, to obey that source. That's meekness, as far as I can tell. And what's their promise? They'll inherit the earth. This is a beautiful role reversal. Because so often in life, kind of the now versus the then that you get in Luke. Now, the meek get nothing. The meek are shoved to the back of the line. And they're willing to do it. But sadly, it does, that, maybe that's why we equate meekness with weakness, because they get walked all over. But see what the Lord is doing for their sake? We see elsewhere in Scripture the promise that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Well, if the meek come in last in the world's lines, then what is the Lord doing? In some ways, it reminds me of family dinner when everyone's fighting over the food because if you've got a big family uh, and if you don't fight to get your portion, you won't get a portion. Everyone else will gobble it up before you get there. Well, imagine a kind of free-for-all when the dinner bell rings and everyone comes running into line, kind of cafeteria style. Let's go with that. Okay? And there's the, the table with the, with the food and everybody's lined up and it's usually... The, the big guys jockeying for position. And the meek are left in the back. Well, imagine if the, the host of this meal, capital H, were to say, okay, is everyone in line? You ready to eat? And these big burly boys at the start are like are, you know, salivating already. And the Lord says, wonderful. Please maintain your position. And then he picks up the food and he walks to the back of the line. Has everyone do an about face and says, now will begin serving. That's what it means for the last to be first. I've sometimes wondered if we could do that in a classroom where everybody comes and sits down and then I, instead of standing at the front of the room, move to the back and ask everyone to turn around. All of a sudden the back row students are the front row students and they don't feel, I wish sometimes we could do that at church. 
because the people who are struggling to get their kids on time and, and they're sitting there in the back in the overflow, man, you are at a distance and perhaps at a disadvantage to have the kind of experience where you really feel that the, the speaker is connecting to you. I love that Jesus is willing to flip things. Yeah, this is the lowly. Let's start with you. And let's let the meek inherit the earth. After all, the earth is going to be to receive its paradisical glory. It will become the celestial kingdom. That's an amazing promise of things to come. But the meek will be the ones to inherit it. And I think that word is used on purpose also. What is a younger child left to inherit after the birthright gets their double portion? Well, no wonder so often in Scripture, it's not the firstborn that gets it. It's an Abel, not a Cain. It's a Jacob, not an Esau. It's a Joseph, not a Reuben. It's a Nephi, not a Laman. Interesting role reversals there too. Verse 6 Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Luke's version of that gives this sense of immediacy now versus ultimate then. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. So this now of hungering, like the now of weeping, like the now of so many things that we go through in life, it's just temporary. The blessedness is permanent. You just have to wait for it to come. Are we sufficiently patient to receive it? And notice here also, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They'll be filled, great, with what? Filled with living water, that's what the woman at the well was hoping for. Filled with the bread of life, well, wait for the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. But if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then what is your reward? According to the Third Nephi version, those that hunger and thirst in that way will be filled with the Holy Ghost. And what a promise. In fact, he runs throughout this. The poor in spirit, oh, the spirit himself will change that, that poverty to wealth. Those that mourn, they'll be comforted. And what's the Holy Ghost's title? Comforter with a capital C. Meek inheriting the earth as it receives its it's spiritual recreation. And here the, the hungry and the thirsty filled with the Holy Ghost. Think about hunger and thirst as literal things where you eat and drink. And as a result of that particular eating and that particular drinking, you are given the promise of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. What's that sound like to you? Sounds like the sacrament to me. Where if we come truly famished, wanting more than anything else. We're talking Fast Sunday kind of feeling. Wanting more than anything to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Then we do come with broken hearts and contrite spirits. We do come to the sacrament table, that sacrificial altar, willing to lay down our lesser selves and become more like the Savior. Willing to take upon us His name, if only He'll give it to us. Willing to keep His commandments. Willing to always remember Him, that we might always have His Spirit to be with us. That's what fills the empty stomach, or in this case, the empty soul. What a beautiful promise. It's actually interesting. I remember years ago being really struck by this, and so I dug it up and found the old talk. It was given very early on 
in the ministry of someone you may know and love named Russell M. Nelson. Back in 1986, he'd only been an apostle for two years, but he gave a talk in which he described an experience he had in Israel with a senior apostle, Elder Marky e. Peterson. And this is what do then Dr. Nelson <laughs> said about the experience. I was with Elder Marky e. Peterson in the Holy Land in October 1983, during his last mortal journey. Elder Peterson was not well. Evidences of his consuming malignancy were so painfully real to him, yet he derived strength from the Savior he served. Now remember, this is a doctor looking on, seeing this consuming malignancy. Dr. Nelson goes on, following a night of intense suffering, aggravated by pangs of his progressive inability to eat or to drink, Elder Peterson addressed throngs assembled at the Mount of Beatitudes to hear his discourse on the Sermon on the Mount. Can you picture being there, on site, talk about a field trip, and hearing a modern apostle give voice to the words of the Savior himself? Elder Nelson explained that after Elder Peterson recited, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, he departed from the biblical text and pleaded this question, Do you know what it is to be really hungry? Do you know what it is to really be thirsty? Do you desire righteousness as you would desire food or drink under extreme conditions? The Savior expects us to literally hunger and thirst after righteousness and seek it with all our hearts. And Dr. Nelson, looking on, knew that there was so much more to this message than surface-level statements. He said, I was one of the few present on that occasion who knew how hungry and thirsty Elder Peterson really was. His encroaching cancer had deprived him of relief from physical hunger and thirst. So he understood that doctrine. He withstood the trial. He thanked the Lord who lent him power to preach his last major sermon at the sacred site where his Lord Jesus had preached. How oh, talk about knowing of what you speak. Have you ever been that hungry? And in his case, unable to satiate those hunger pangs. Maybe that's why people are so desperately looking for things, escapes, satisfactions in drugs or alcohol or immorality or anything that gets their mind off the things that are gnawing, the emptiness that's gnawing at their soul. But not to be able to satisfy. Talk about changing stones to bread. That rock will not change the hunger within. But come to the rock of our salvation and be filled with the fruits of His righteousness, the fruits of the Spirit. That fruit is so sweet, you'll never hunger and never thirst again. The next beatitude in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In that case, we get what we give. This is the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. This is the yo-yo principle. Send it out, it'll come right back. And however, particularly, however you treat someone else is the way God will end up treating you. Talk about a difference from this dog-eat-dog -dog world that we live in. Talk about flipping things to start serving the, those at the back of the line. 
Be merciful to others, even when they don't deserve mercy. Reminds me of you, in a way. <laughs> don't, 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 receive, don't deserve mercy either, but we'll receive it if you'll just hunger and thirst after my righteousness. If you'll just come unto me in faith, you will obtain mercy. Next, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And not see God in some sign-seeking, oh, demanding proof sort of a way. This is not Sherem demanding a sign. This is not Korahor demanding a sign. This is not scribes and Pharisees demanding signs, as we'll see later in the Gospels. This is miracles coming on the heels of exercised faith. This is purity, a pure heart, an open mind, a trust in one another. No skepticism here, no cynicism here. Just a pure heart, I believe. And here comes the reward of that belief. Perfect knowledge. Seeing God himself. It does take more than mere mortality to discern divinity itself. And so to, I mean, this is like, what, section 130, I think, of the Doctrine and Covenants? That even spirit is matter, but it's such finer matter that it takes more discerning eyes to be able to detect. It takes that level of purity, pure humanity, to discern pure divinity. But if we can achieve that level of purity in Christ, then we will see Christ and we will see God. We'll see him as he is which is purity personified. In fact, think of that in terms of this verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. When he shall appear, second coming of Christ that is, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How's that for seeing God? And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. How's that for the pure in heart? The pure in heart will see God because they will purify themselves in God, through God. As a result, they will see him as he really is and see themselves as someone who has taken upon themselves his likeness. Has he engraven his image in your countenance? Are we sufficiently pure for him to come close, close enough to see? Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And the connection there in my mind is to be a child of God, there's got to be family resemblance. It has to be like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. And as we become like our heavenly parents who love all of their children, no matter who and no matter what, no wonder they're asking us to be peacemakers. When I see my children making peace with one another, especially when there's been some friction, and rather than turning to us and you got to punish that person, you're their parent. Yeah, I am, which means I love them. And punishing them hurts me. You think there's any way that the two of you can sort this out? Work it through, make it right? Can you be a little bit more forgiving and them a little more careful? Can you be a little more patient and then try a little harder to be kind? If we can be peacemakers, then we are children of the Prince of Peace himself. And that's the goal. That's his goal for us. To Jesus' original audience, that would be peace with the Samaritans. 
So ask the woman at the well. It would be peace with the Gentiles. If, according to Luke's version, you're sitting next to a few. <laughs> there they are, mixed multitude. Can you get along? How about with the Romans? Uh, I'll talk about publicans in a moment, and that's we're getting close. Can we be peacemakers in order to be the children of God? And then the final Beatitudes, 10 through 12. This is where, in some ways, it might even be harder. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And yes, it better be falsely, because if it's true, then maybe you deserved it, okay? But make sure that what they're saying about you is not true, that you don't deserve that kind of opposition. And if you don't deserve it, but you're accepting it anyway, if you're turning cheeks, as we'll see later in the sermon, then blessed are you. In fact, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You see, the kingdom of heaven will not be gained without opposition. Believe me, I'll face it more intensely than any of you ever could. But if you're preparing to follow me, then prepare to be persecuted. Prepare to be shunned or scorned, unfollowed on your social media. In fact, it's interesting the way the Luke version couches this, frames it. Luke 6, 22 to 23, similar, but with enough difference it's worth noting. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company. That's an interesting one. That's when you're ostracized and unfriended. Uh, not just rejected and reproached, okay? You've been separated from their company. Keep going. They shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. That's an interesting phrase too. To cast out your name, which is either to throw it away from them or just to put it out there, but attach it to some kind of wrongdoing. Oh, those Mormons, they're not Christians. Oh, you've cast out my name as evil? Oh, if that's happened to you for the Son of Man's sake, then rejoice ye in that day. In fact, leap for joy. There's more of that Lucan intensity. Okay, dance, like he said earlier. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. You see, what both the Matthew and the Luke version end with is that sense of companionship with the prophets and martyrs that have gone before you. That's amazing to me. And in those times where I have been attacked, uh, often simply for trying, I, I, I never try to fight fire with fire. I am not an Elijah in, the, in that case. Uh, I much prefer the non-confrontational, I'll stand up for truth and I won't name names of those that are opposing it. I want to be their friends. I want to turn the other cheek. I, I learned that from Jesus. But when I have been attacked, sometimes by name, uh, sometimes with strong language, sometimes with mischaracterization and misrepresentation, sometimes with malice, this is the verse that always comes to mind. And as long as I don't claim it pridefully, and use it to put myself above my attackers, then at least it puts me on par 
with some of the best people that have ever lived. Now, and don't misunderstand me here. I'm not on par spiritually with those prophets that went before. This just might be the only thing we have in common. That we've been opposed or persecuted or our names cast out there as evil or shunned or, or <laughs> separated from their company. Wait a minute. I guess I'm still in a company, aren't I? A company of the converted. I'm, I'm friends with the faithful. I'm, to find partnership with prophets and apostles of old, that's amazing to me. And to think, President Benson, excuse me, President Hinckley once gave a talk called The Loneliness of Leadership. And he knew it. Think of uh, the final Moroni of the Book of Mormon, wandering alone for all those decades. To stand up for truth and righteousness can be a lonely thing, especially when you're separated from other people's company. But by being separated from that company, you're welcomed into this one. And prophets and apostles, martyrs and saints, will be able to smile and nod and mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, saying, I know exactly how you feel. And our leadership is no longer so lonely because we have each other. This might be what Paul himself described as what Jesus went through and then invited us into. His phrase was the fellowship of his sufferings. There's some beautiful fellowship here. To me, that is a price worth paying, even if the price is persecution. By the way, in that passage where it first says, blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then the second round, blessed are you if you're persecuted for my sake. And I wonder, is there a difference? Maybe not. I mean, the JST changes righteousness' sake for my name's sake. So it's still Jesus either way. But if you hold to the King James and, and use it as this idea, is there a difference? Could there be a difference? To me, it is worth wrestling with. Because I think sometimes we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, but it's not so personal a connection with Jesus, like we're being persecuted for His sake. Sometimes we're persecuted because we're lumped into the mix and, oh, you're a Mormon, you're a Latter-day Saint, and we don't want anything to do with you. Well, okay, that's persecution because of your, the tribe you're a part of. Sometimes you're persecuted for your standards. Okay, but is that just mere, uh, merely a lifestyle or the culture that you've grown up uh, a part of. To me, there's something far more personal when it's for Christ's sake rather than just righteousness' sake. Why are you righteous? Is it because of your personal relationship with the Lord? In some ways, it's the difference between being part of the military and fighting to defend the cause or being secret service where you are protecting the president. Now, maybe even more close, close to this, it's one thing to protect, be on secret service for a president you didn't vote for. In which case, I'm just doing this because it's my duty, okay? This is for righteousness sake. I'm trying to defend the United States and its president, whether or not I like the guy. But if it was a president you voted for, a president you would have campaigned for if you could, if it was someone you were so close to that it's not just duty compelling you, but it's love that leads you into harm's way, 
that I would give my life for you because I know you would, and in fact, in Jesus' case, you will do the same for me. I hope my connection to Christ is personal enough that when I'm persecuted, it's for his sake. Not just because I'm trying to do what's right or because I'm part of a church I believe in. No, this is relational, as it should be. Now, one thing to say here before we leave these Beatitudes behind, we need to understand that they are not merely unrelated attributes. That Jesus is kind of thrown out buckshot and saying, here's a bunch of things to work on. Now, I really do think these are things to work on in order as you strive to grow up in God, as we start moving up the trajectory and aiming for that, that perfection when all is said and done, that perfection in Christ. The reason I say that is when Peter talks about taking on the divine nature in his epistles and becoming like Christ, there's the, the divine nature if I've ever seen it. To come unto him and become like him, how do we do it? Peter's version is you do it step by step. This is grace for grace and then progressing grace to grace until we receive a fullness. And if each step on the ladder, each rung on Jacob's ladder, each step on the stairway to heaven is another level of grace, it's another principle or ordinance of the gospel that I'm ascending through, then it is a cumulative crescendo in Christ. And the way Peter says it is start with this and then add to it this. And then from that, add to this and then add this and grow up in God in, along those lines. What if the Beatitudes are intended for a similar ascent? What if we begin by being poor in spirit, but we recognize that fact? And we know that the source of the strength we need, the source of the spirit that we're so poor in, is Jesus. So we come unto him borrowing from the third Nephi version. Isn't that faith? I know where to find what I lack. It's in Christ. My faith is in him. And so I come. And, but what, and what keeps me from coming? Ah, all these sins with which I'm beset. Well, then mourn over those sins. Experience the necessary godly sorrow to leave them behind in your past. And that kind of sorrowful repentance will lead to comfort in Christ. Faith in Christ, poor in spirit, come to me. Repentance, mourn and be comforted. Meek, I do see meekness in baptism because like we saw when we studied at Matthew 3, meek, the meek Messiah, Jesus himself was willing to descend below all things, condescend to be baptized like us mere mortals, us sinners that really needed to be cleansed by the waters of baptism by that covenant with Christ. If you're meek, to make, meek enough to make a covenant, to stay connected to the power source, you'll inherit the earth. In fact, one step beyond that, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll be filled with what? With the Holy Ghost. We've seen, we've ascended now through the fourth article of faith, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. And then what follows? Blessed are the merciful. What are we doing now? We are working on Christ-like attributes. Mercy is only one of many. But now that I've established Christ in the forefront of my faith and begin to allow my behavior to fall into line with his lessons, his, his example, 
once I've immersed myself in that kind of lifestyle and covenanted to, to stay that way, once I've been confirmed in it and the Spirit is beginning to change me, then let it change me. Let, help me become more like Christ, attribute by attribute, grace by grace. Now, I'm not done there because what does Jesus next ask for? Be pure in heart because sadly, I think we can be working all, on all kinds of Christ-like attributes and still not be pure. Do we need to purify our motives in all that we're doing so far? We'll see that next week in Matthew 6. Do we need to purify our approach? Do we need to pu just purify our, our, our hopes, our desires, our actions? If virtue is flowing out of him, are we letting it come in to make us as virtuous as he is? To be pure even as he is pure? That's to me the next step. And then what follows after that? The peacemakers. Up to this point, how much of that can I do on my own? Not on an island somewhere. In fact, it might be easier to develop Christ-like attributes if there's no one out there to call them into question. Nobody to test my patience. This is Castaway where it's just Tom Hanks and Wilson, uh, volleyball. And yeah, I bet I could become a pretty Christ-like person in isolation. But then push me and test me and persecute me. Ooh, that's what comes next. Can I still be a peacemaker with other people all thrown into the mix? If I can do that, if I can make peace with one another and continue to do so even in the face of actual opposition, real persecution, for Christ's own sake, maybe I'm now growing up in God. Maybe now I'm becoming all that he asks of me. And that's the Savior's hope so far in this Sermon on the Mount. He's about to go on with being salt and being light and making a difference all around you. But if we could pause just for a moment before going there and let Luke get another word in edgewise. Luke's version of this sermon, he not only gives us these blessednesses, these beatitudes, he gives us some cursednesses as well. Do we call those the be notitudes? I don't know. But things that we should not be, because it's anything but blessed. In 2 Nephi 9, when Jacob's talking, he uses a bunch of O's and a bunch of woes. And it's this rejoicing of, oh, the goodness of God, and oh, his mercy and his grace, and oh, and his great plan. But then it's like, woe unto the liar, and woe unto the adulterer, and woe, woe, woe. And it's fun to read 2 Nephi 9 looking for the O's and the woes. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, the O's are all those beatitudes. And the woes are only found in Luke's account. But there in chapter 6, verse 24, 25, and 26, each verse gets its own woe. First one, verse 24, But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Oh, we talked about the poor being blessed. The rich? Why the woe? Well, sounds like because you already have been blessed, and you got your blessings in the here and now. Remember Luke's focus on that is the now versus the then? And so those who are rich... Now, we could say, will your riches last? Are you laying up treasures in heaven or only here on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt? To understand, that's what he hints at at the beginning. You've already received your consolation. You were in the front of the line and you got the, the, the good stuff. Because life doesn't tend to go around to the back and start from the other side. 
I've sometimes thought to myself, how many mansions can one person end up with? Because God promises mansions in heaven that he's preparing for us. Would I rather have my mansion here on earth? Now, please don't get me wrong. There are incredible people in the world that will end up with both mansions. That live in a mansion here, but still are more focused on the mansion yet to come. And in that case, blessed are you if you seek for riches, for you will seek them with the intent to do good. That's how Jacob said it. You will, you will use your prosperity to help everyone else around you prosper as well. And that's a great, that's a great thing. It's the others that I worry about that decide for themselves, no, the, the, the mansion on earth is all that I need. In which case, ah, what a bummer. You'll only get one, and you're getting it now instead of then. You already received your consolation. This would be like Jesus accepting Satan's third temptation of the kingdoms of the world. You can have them now. Ah, no thanks. I'll take them later when they come in the right way. The second woe is in verse 25. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. You see, this is being on the wrong end of the role reversal. We already saw the last becoming first. Here we're seeing the first becoming last. You see, if you already think you've got all you need, then of course we close ourselves for all the extra that the Lord is offering thinking we've got things covered. If we are laughing now, especially laughing at someone else's expense, then we won't be laughing when all is said and done. This is such a Lucan thing to say, by the way. It reminds me of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is also only found in the book of Luke. Luke loved role reversals. And in case you didn't see it on the positive end, the poor becoming the rich in God, he dramatizes it by flipping around and showing you its opposite. The rich of this world becoming poor in the kingdom of heaven. And then the last one, verse 26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Which again is the flip side of what the Matthew version said. That you're in good company if you're persecuted. Well, in this case, you're on the wrong side of that persecution. You've joined the enemy, and of course they have nothing negative to say about you. You're on their side. You understand what Paul is worried about when he talks about itching ears and people that are laying up preachers to their own lusts? Please come scratch me where I, want it, where I need it. Tell me what I want to hear. There's priestcraft for you. Now, that is not calling evil evil. It's not calling things out. It's not crying repentance. It's just trying to fit in and go with the flow and be swept downstream in the currents of culture. Oh, you'll, be, you'll have friends in this life. You just don't want to end up where that stream is taking you. I, I do love what Luke adds to the mix by helping us see the flip side of it. And if, I'm, if I don't have any enemies Again, I'm not trying to make enemies. I'm not trying to justify those who are attacking me. I'm trying to turn other cheeks and love my enemy and pray for them and so on. We'll see more of that, a second round of that by the end of this chapter. But to see if my, 
if my lack of opposition comes because of my lack of allegiance to the Lord, then that's a problem. If I don't want to ruffle feathers or rock the boat, and so I'm not going to say anything, I don't want to be cast out. I don't want to have my name put out there as evil. Then I'm out of balance in this law and love contrary. I'm trying to fit into the world. I'm just telling people what they want to hear. And that's the mark of a false prophet. Samuel the Lamanite said it would be that way. He warned his hearers, you are trying to cast me out, throw, cast your stones and, throw, and shoot your arrows because I'm telling you that there's things to change. You call me a false prophet because I'm speaking truth. Whereas those who would speak falsehood to you and tell you just what you want to hear, those are true prophets in your book. Do you not see how you have turned truth and morality on its head? Do you not see how you're making good become evil and evil become good? Just like Isaiah said it would be. That's the world we live in. And it's a world we need to stand up to. It is a fine line and a delicate balance to do that. To speak for truth and righteousness in such a way that even those who oppose us might end up having ears to hear. My friends, so far, we're only, what, maybe a third of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. But to see what Jesus is calling us to become, oh, he is lifting our sights. He's reaching down from his set position of strength to lift us to higher levels. So far, may we be blessed along the lines of the Beatitudes. Because if we have arrived at that point, the Lord is now ready to turn us around so we can let our lights shine. Shining light is what the second half, or the second and third thirds of the Sermon on the Mount are all about. And so if we've ascended to this point thus far, and here we are standing on the Mount of Beatitudes at its height, having received the blessedness of the Lord by following his example, no wonder he can turn us around and let our light shine. We see that in verse 13, uh, back to the Matthew 5 version. He says to us, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, well, maybe good for something, to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. See, back in those days, it, it doesn't snow much in Israel, but for us, I, we do see a purpose in in salt that has lost its savor. And yes, literally, it is trodden under foot of man or under tire of car. But the question the Lord seems to be asking us is, would you rather be salt or ice melt? <laughs> Take your pick. You see, in the biblical world, when they weren't salting their roads, salt was used for all kinds of things. The most obvious for us would be to bring out flavor that might be a little too subtle to detect. Can we do that? Can we bring, we're going to talk about shining a light in just a moment, but can we salt the truths of the world? Can we find truth wherever we, we, we can, wherever we turn? Truth in world literature, truth in other religions, truth in, in nonfiction and fiction, in art, in music, in poetry. And can we salt it? Can we help people see how it fits in this one great whole? 
in the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in, in a fullness of truth? Can we bring out the latent talents and gifts that God has given his children? Can we help develop them in goodness? To me, there's something beautiful about that kind of saltiness. To, sadly, to be salty is kind of, it, it's not seen as a good thing the way we typically use it. That person's like, yeah, they're kind of a salty person. No, we need to be salty in the Lord's way. So bring out flavor. Another thing in the ancient world salt was used for was preservation. No refrigerators, no freezers there. But to salt meat, for example, would help preserve it from decay. Can we be that kind of salt in the world as well? If we are the salt of the earth, can we preserve the earth so the meek can inherit it? Can we prepare it for its paradisiacal glory? Can we help people overcome the deterioration that comes into their lives when we turn to sin? And can we covenant to do so? Because a third use of salt in the ancient world was with covenants. And when they are making a covenant and adding salt to it, when they're making an offering on the altar and adding salt to that lamb without blemish, are we that kind of covenant salt of the earth as well? Allowing the Lord to keep his covenants with all of his children, gathering Israel on both sides of the veil and keeping our covenants with him. There's another thing to think about this as well, that this salt, this flavor, this preservation, this covenant, it's not because of who we are. It's because of what the Lord calls us to become. It's perfection in Christ as usual. So notice this from the JST version of it. It's not just, ye are the salt of the earth, well, well done, good job. No, it's, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. He'll say the same thing about the light. I give unto you to be the light of the world. It's a gift. And where there's a gift, there's a giver that deserves all the glory for the gift. We've got to remember that. Christ, can you make me more salty? Can you intensify my light by shining into me yourself? You get that sense somewhat in the next passage as well, which is about the light of the world, the gift God gives us. Verse 14 through 16, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And this is not just for visibility. Often cities were built on hills for protection. That's the, the preservation side of salt. And here's the protection side of a a hilltop city. Climb the mountain of the Lord. Okay, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And why not under a bushel? Well, first of all, it completely defeats the purpose. Uh, you're, trying to, you're igniting the light, so that you're, you're lighting the candle to give light. And why would you cover it? But there's something else about this bushel. If, lights, if candle lights are covered, they typically go out. You've suffocated them. There's no breath, no wind, no air, no spirit that is as important for light as the fuel that it's burning. Don't, do not extinguish your light by hiding it. Use it. Let it shine just like the Lord intended. So don't put it under a bushel. Instead, put it on a candlestick. Hold on to that metaphor. John is going to use it in the book of Revelation. But Jesus goes on. It giveth light unto all that are in the house. 
Again, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Whose are the works? Yours. Although it's also the Lord working within us. Either way, though, who gets the glory? God does. Let them glorify your Father, which is in heaven. See, the power of this is the light is not... Well, that's the irony. Light doesn't shine upon itself. Light shines on everything else. And so I hope that we are not striving to be the light of the world so that the world sees us for our sake. Now that's self-serving. And the Lord will spend almost a whole chapter on that next week in chapter 6. Oh, you need purer motives than that. Shine on everything else. Shine on them. Help them see themselves and one another. Help them see the Lord. Again, that's where a candlestick comes in. When John brings it up as a symbol in Revelation chapter 1, he's using it to describe the church. The church is a candlestick. And often as I've asked my students, why would he symbolize the church as a candlestick? They always jump to this kind of language. Oh, because we're supposed to be the light of the world. I'm like, oh, since when do candlesticks give light? And that's when the light comes on for them. Oh, candlesticks don't give light. They merely hold up the light. And it's the light of the Lord. That's what the church is supposed to do. We may be a city set on a hill, but it's his mountain. So focus on him. Uh, let him work in you and then let those works convince those around you to glorify God, your Father who is in heaven. In 3 Nephi, after teaching similar things, Jesus makes it abundantly clear by the end of that great ministry when he says, I am the light that you should hold up, that which you have seen me do. Ye are the light of the world, eh, in a way. In reality, Christ is the light of the world, and we've got to keep that straight. One other thing to keep straight that I find interesting is when Matthew's version says you're the light of the world, and the light is meant to all that are in the house. That's, what, that's the, the language. Now think about a Jew writing to Jews, the house of Israel. And so here we are kind of limiting our light to the like-minded. It's for the Jews, the house of Israel. And all that are in the house better see the Messiah that we're shining the light upon. Do not miss that. Well, here's where it gets interesting as far as different writers with different audiences and therefore different approaches. Now, interestingly, this is not found in, the Luke's, in Luke's sermon at the, at the plain. This is found a little bit later. It's not Luke 6, it's Luke 8. But in it, Jesus is teaching something else. We'll actually see this even in the Matthew account, that sometimes things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he brings up again elsewhere. And especially if it's, if it's strictly in the book of Matthew, we'll see this about plucking out eyes in just a moment. Uh, that if Jesus says it twice or more, and Matthew includes both of them, it's not just a matter of him confusing things. It's like, no, Jesus taught the same thing in multiple venues, multiple occasions. And go figure. He's got multiple audiences everywhere he goes. There's going to be some repetition here. But what's, So when Luke brings up this idea about light shining, it's not in the context of the Sermon at the Plain. It's in a different, a different setting. But listen to how the Savior says it. Luke 8, verse 16 no man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or put it under a bed. That's his version of the bushel, okay? But setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. Did you catch that subtle difference? In Matthew's version of this concept, 
The light shines for whom? Those that are in the house. You Jews. In Luke's version, for whom does the light shine? All those who enter in. Sound like inviting the Gentiles to enter into the covenant, into the house of Israel, be adopted. Again, very subtle. Which did Jesus say? I don't know. I'm sure he said both. I'm sure he intended both versions because he wants Jew and Gentile alike to come unto him. This is the mixed multitude there on the mountain or on the plain. Beautiful little details. And by the way, when you go to 3 Nephi's version, is it more the Matthean view or more of the Lucan view? Well, the Nephites were part of the house of Israel. And yes, it's the Matthew version that they get those that are in the house. But there is one slight difference. And I talked about this more at length when, in the 3 Nephi 12 version a couple of years ago when we studied the Book of Mormon together. But it struck me the first time I ever taught a, an audience of Utah students. I was student teaching in seminary 25 years ago, give or take. And I was assigned to teach the sermon at the temple in 3 Nephi 12. I thought, man, you're giving me the, the, the easy stuff. Well, not easy. Nobody can do justice to the words of Jesus himself. But in terms of like, I love this. Thanks for assigning me a good chapter. But I wanted to see as much as I could. And so sure enough, I had Matthew 5 in one hand and 35, 12 in the other. And this passage blew me away as far as its difference. I've done this with classes before. And I'll say, fill in the blank. Ye are the light of, and they all know it, the world. Okay, wonderful. Uh, fill in the blank. Let your light so shine before, and they know it, before men. Wonderful. They'll see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know your stuff. At least you know your Matthew stuff. That's not how Jesus said it to the Nephites. And with that, they're intrigued, curious, and like, look at how he said it to them. And what's the language? He says, ye are the light of this people. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. He says, let your light so shine before this people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And when you probe that, that phrasing, who are this people? To the Nephites. Maybe a better question, who is not this people? Since the wicked have already been destroyed in chapter 8, 9, and 10 of 3 Nephi. All that you have left then are those righteous enough to be waiting for the coming of Christ. Believers. Still Imperfect. We're not to verse 48 yet, but trying their best to do what's right. It seems like these would be the people who already have a light and have been letting it shine. But now that's all there's left. Surely we can turn it down because, I mean, why shine on someone else that already has a light of their own? And Jesus would say, oh, they need it just as much as anybody else. Do you see why this was such a gift to me as I began to teach a class of, of youth who grew up and were living in Utah. I'm not one of those anti-Utah people, okay? As a Californian myself, I, I see strengths, in, and having lived in Texas and lived in Tennessee, and there's, there's strengths and weaknesses and pros and cons and advantages and disadvantages of living on the Wasatch Front, in the corridor, the Mormon corridor, as it's sometimes been called, and then living out in the mission field, as it's sometimes been called. The whole world is a mission field, by the way including Utah. And even among fellow members, we must become missionaries. I am so grateful for this insight because so much of my life has been spent here in Utah and my children's lives. 
and to be able to say to them that even right here among this people, among the fellow Latter-day Saints that are the vast majority of your classmates here at a, at a Utah high school, let it shine. I've talked to my BYU students about this, especially those that come from out of state and did their very best to let their light shine before men and to be the light of the world when their world was primarily non-Latter-day Saint. And then they come to BYU. And I had the same challenge when I moved there as a freshman long, long ago and felt like, oh, I guess my light isn't so needed here. In LA it was, but not in Provo. Oh, it was needed in Provo. It still is. And when you can help both those from the area and those outside that have come in realize that even around fellow Latter-day Saints, we need to set good examples. We need to shine as lights in the world, even when our immediate world looks a lot like us. I am grateful for Latter-day Saints right here who do just that because their illumination helps illuminate me. What does he say next? Look at verse 17 and 18. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now in the Luke account, we've already seen that he's had some dust-ups with the Pharisees over issues of law. How come your followers are gathering grain on the Sabbath? They shouldn't be doing that. That's work. And Jesus has to go through this whole conversation, which we'll get to once we see it in Matthew. Okay? In the Matthew account, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and yet, on the Lord's mind, he knows what he's come to do. And he knows, unfortunately, for many people, fulfilling law might actually look like destroying it. And that's not his intent. In fact, his intent is to keep the law until its ultimate fulfillment. In fact, the way he says it is so... Is so stark, not a single jot, not a single tittle. And a jot, a yod if you're speaking Hebrew, is the smallest Hebrew letter in the, in the whole alphabet. It's this tiny, in some ways it almost looks like an apostrophe. It's so small. And I'm not going to remove a single one. There have been some Jewish traditions that speak of the danger that comes if you get a letter wrong. You ever done that and made a typo and you didn't check, there was no spell check, or you didn't review and edit? And you're horrified by a mistake you made, and it was so minor. Just a letter that you missed. But it's devastating. Well, the Jewish, uh, in Jewish tradition, maybe that's their, like, you better have good penmanship, and you better be really meticulous and careful when you're copying things, especially the Word of God. Because if you miss a yod, it could change everything. There was a, there was one called the, what's it called? The Adulterer's Bible? I can't remember the exact name. But adulterers would have liked it because whoever was typesetting things accidentally, at least we hope it was accidental, left out the word not in the seventh commandment. The one that says thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah, you can see why it would be dubbed the adulterer's Bible. Uh, thou shalt commit adultery. Ooh, that makes a huge difference with a tiny little mistake. So I'm not trying to destroy the law. I'm not trying to erase yodes. Not a single jot. And then a tittle, in some ways, is even smaller. 
because a tittle is like the tiniest little brush stroke uh, or pen stroke, I should say, uh, that, for example, in Hebrew, there are some letters that look so similar, there's just a tiny little thing missing. Think about the difference in English, for example. Capital letters, compare a capital E to a capital F. And what's the difference? Just that one stroke on the bottom. That's all it is. Uh, in some ways, even closer analogy. Have you seen like uh, fonts on the computer that are serif or sans serif? Sans means without. So the only difference is these ones have serifs and these ones, these fonts don't. And the serif is the tiny little pen stroke at the, at the corners of, of the edges of letters. So picture an eye that's just a straight up and down line versus the kind that has a little horizontal line at the top and a little horizontal line at the bottom. Uh, or again, look up sans serif versus serif and you'll see it. And the serif is the tittle that Jesus is talking about here. Something so minuscule. You can still read it. It's like, mm, just in case. Jesus doesn't believe in sans serif. <laughs> He's going to make sure every tittle is there. Now, then how do you explain what you're going to do against the law of Moses over and over, especially on Sabbath days? That's what a Pharisee is going to wonder. I thought you said you weren't destroying the law, but you keep destroying it. And I picture Jesus as he says here, no, I'm fulfilling it. You see, the difference between fulfilling and destroying the law is massive. And sadly, I see it in ourselves sometimes when we claim to be using the spirit of the law to destroy the letter of the law. And that's not what the spirit of the law does. The spirit of the law might make exceptions to the letter of the law, but it honors what that letter was trying to accomplish. It, it still is meant to fulfill what that letter intended. It just might be a different approach to it because this person is in a different circumstance or situation than that one is. I hope this is making sense. I just, I, I, it's hard for me to hear people try to justify behavior with the spirit of the law when I worry. I don't, I don't see the spirit of that. Um, it, it seems like an easier approach or you're not ruffling feathers or you're not wanting to ruffle your own. And so just to chalk it out, well, it's the spirit of the law. Okay, then how is it connected to the letter of the law? And I'm not trying to confine ourselves to the letter either, because that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus pushed back against that too. Jesus himself, throughout what we'll see in the Gospels, is walking a fine line of fulfilling without destroying. But it's such a fine line that Pharisees are quick to condemn him for what they say was destruction of the law of Moses. And you picture a Jesus saying, no, ask Moses. In fact, I'm Moses 2.0. I'm the giver of the law. You think I'm going to break it? But I know the reasons why I gave it. And if that was a schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ, as Paul will say, well, this, the real teachers finally come. Trust me. I think there's something about fulfilling law that makes us more careful about and more conscious of what the law was trying to accomplish from the very beginning. It's what allows us to carefully create exceptions to the law or exceptions to the rule without destroying the rule itself. 
Have you noticed in our day what began with, okay, we're going to make an exception to the rule in this circumstance, and we'll make an exception to the rule in that circumstance, and before long, we keep making so many exceptions without understanding their exceptional circumstance, that now there's no longer an exception because there's no longer a rule. That's really when it gets topsy-turvy. That's really when good, evil becomes good and good becomes evil. And sadly, we're in that place right now in many a social situation. Pick your topic and think about it. And are we, are we sufficiently careful and conscious of what rules were meant to accomplish so that we can be sensitive to those rules, even at times where we have to make allowances? I, I hate to become so prescriptive, or prescriptive, I should say, uh, to spell it all out, and you think it's limited to that. No, I'm going to have to trust us with the Holy Ghost to know what that's going to look like. But that's what Jesus is after. I want to fulfill law without destroying law. Let me actually even give you one example that might help for us Latter-day Saints, especially in our interaction with people of other faiths. Because the Lord is going to use similar language in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's fascinating. This is section 10, verse 52 to 54, where the Lord says, Now behold, according to their faith in their prayers, will I bring this part of my gospel to the knowledge of my people. And that's just the ancients who were praying for a restoration in the latter days. And it's going to come. Okay? It's actually happening as they speak. But the Lord says this, but Behold, I do not bring it, the restoration, to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. In other words, the restoration of the gospel is a fulfillment rather than a destruction of what people had before. The restoration doesn't destroy the churches that, that already existed. It's come to fulfill their purpose, to fill in the blanks that are missing. He goes on, for this cause have I said, if this generation harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them. How's that for the restoration of the gospel, restoration of the church? But then notice this phrase. Now, I do not say this to destroy my church, but I say this to build up my church. Now, the fact he keeps talking about his church is fascinating. I'm going to establish my church. But don't worry, it's not going to destroy my church. It's going to fulfill my church. And you're like, wait, 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 what? How's it? If you're restoring your church, then there's no church to be destroyed. It was already destroyed long before, and you're just coming to rebuild, right? And it's like, no, I'm coming to build upon. I'm not trying to destroy the church that already exists. Wait, the church doesn't exist. That's why you needed to restore it. Oh, no, it church, my, the church exists. It exists in its Catholic form and its Protestant form and its Buddhist form and its Muslim form and its Jewish form and its Hindu form. It's humanistic form. That's an interesting one. Oh, my church are people that are striving to increase in light and in truth. Ultimately, that all leads to me. Go reread section 84. But in the meantime, I'm not trying to dismantle all the truth that's already out there. I'm trying to fulfill it. I'm trying to build upon it. Because those foundations are good. Think about the allegory of the olive tree. The roots are still good. I'm trying to bring forth good fruit. But if I can preserve the root and bring forth the fruit, all the better. Because my ancient covenant people are still my covenant people. It's still part of my big church. 
big C church. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, that's meant to bring out, the, to breathe the salt that brings out the flavor of every truth that's already found elsewhere. It's the salt to preserve that against an encroaching apostasy. It's the salt that makes this more of a covenant relationship instead of simply forms that have lost some of their functions. But there's truth everywhere. Find it. We've heard many a prophet say, and I believe the first one to say it was Joseph Smith himself, to say to those of other churches, other belief systems, hold on to all the truth you already have. Just come and see if we can add to it. That's all that we're offering. And for Jesus to say that to the so-called guardians of the Mosaic law, I've said this before, the coming of the New Testament was not to destroy the old, but to fulfill. The calling of new apostles was not to denounce previous prophets, but to simply expand the canon in ways that God could continue to give his word to his servants. And in the same way, if the Old Testament is to the New Testament, as the Bible is to the Book of Mormon, as Judaism is to Christianity, as historical Christianity is to restored Christianity in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I mean no offense by this. I am not coming to destroy. The restoration is merely coming to fulfill. And even on the church level, as we saw in section 10, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not destroy the Church of Jesus Christ among any other saints. It simply, it simply builds it up with a fullness of truth and the means by which that fullness will continue to flow, namely prophets and apostles with priesthood authority, receiving revelation from God himself. Powerful, powerful things. Fine line, most people are going to miss it, just like we do, sadly, in our church, uh, as far as culture is concerned. I don't see that among the apostles and prophets, by the way. They quote non-Latter-day Saints in general conference all the time. And they work in interfaith dialogue and do amazing things to, to build up other churches. Uh, when the Cathedral of the Madeline needed some help in, in Salt Lake City, the, a beautiful Catholic uh, cathedral there, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints stepped in and helped. Uh, there was a talk, I think it was... Uh, L. Tom Perry, who once said to other ministers in the area, you've got to help your members become more active. We need strong Catholics and strong Jews and strong Protestants. We need strong people of faith, whatever the flavor of faith might be. I mean, we can add some salt to help with that flavor if you'd like. But we're here to build upon, not to destroy. And Jesus is saying that to, to scribal Judaism. He's saying that to... Pharisaic allegiance to law. I'm on your side. But in a way that will do justice to what you're doing incompletely. Fascinating. In fact, how's this in verse 19 and 20? Matthew 5, go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And the JST of that, he shall in no wise be saved in the kingdom of heaven. It's not just that you're least. You're not going to make it. You're not going to be saved there. But, on the other hand, whosoever shall do and teach them, 
the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Or the JST version, the same shall be saved in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about being least or greatest. It's just being saved or not. And then he says this, and this would be interesting for a scribe or Pharisee to hear, or for the people that, were, that feared the scribes and Pharisees to hear. Jesus says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, stop there for a minute. I, th I thought you were giving us some wiggle room. I thought the spirit of the law would allow for some flexibility based on individual circumstance. Oh, it does. It definitely does. We're going to see more of that as time goes on. But, but then you're now asking us for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? How is that even possible? Look at the Pharisees. They're counting their steps on the Sabbath, and they are, they are famous. They're synonymous with overzealousness. And we're supposed to be overly... Over, overzealous? Is that even a word? Is that even a possibility? How in the world can our righteousness, righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, it's not exceeding them in overzealousness, because their zeal is already overzealous. Their so-called allegiance to law allows for no wiggle room, which sometimes actually keeps the purposes of the law from being fulfilled. And that's what Jesus is pushing up against every time he heals someone on the Sabbath. And we'll see that take place repeatedly. So what does he mean by exceeding their righteousness? Think about it in these terms. Could you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees in terms of your thoughtfulness? In terms of your, your carefulness? In seeing what law applies to what circumstance? And how... Can you be more, can you exceed them in terms of your, the, the purity of your motives? How's that? Or the clarity of your purpose? Because sadly, I think sometimes our Pharisaism, and we're guilty of it in, in, in our day as well, sometimes our Pharisaism is kind of a cop-out so we don't have to think really hard about how commandments apply to certain contexts. Sometimes we just want to go, nope, this is the way it is, and there's no exceptions that this is the rule. And, I'm and the worst part is we claim obedience and honor the whole time. And it's Satan playing to our strength rather than our weakness. It's like, nope, I'm unbending. Okay. But why? Are you thinking about this situation, or is it just easier to say, nope, the rule's this, and I'm not going to think about it? I'm not saying think about it in order to justify something wrong. That's destroying the law. But to fulfill its purpose, then in, and especially when sometimes those, there, there can be cross-purposes, that's a tough one. Especially in times when first great commandment and second great commandment seem to be at odds. How do you balance love and law in the face of, of social concerns? And how do I love family members that have left the church or its standards and am I having to pick between faith and family? These are real issues that we all are wrestling with now, especially with more and more people that we love choosing different paths. And sadly, I think sometimes we accuse them of breaking up our eternal family when we might be just as guilty of breaking up an eternal family by the way we treat the person 
who supposedly left it. Let that sink in for a moment. How do we do it? We exceed wherever, whatever level of righteousness we've been at before in terms of how carefully we approach the righteousness of God. We try to follow Jesus in specific circumstances. That's why I talk about proving contraries until I'm blue in the face. I talk about them all the time. Because so often it's on, in this issue, do I, is my center of gravity more on the mercy side or more on the justice side? In this situation, do we need more faith or do we need more works? In this situation, is it more unity or is it more, more diversity? Is it more head or is it more heart? Those are hard decisions to make. It's easy to understand the concept of proving contraries. It's really hard to implement it perfectly. And yet be therefore perfect, what he's asking for. So let your carefulness exceed the so-called carefulness of the scribes and Pharisees. All they're doing is trying to find a chapter and a verse to justify everything they do. But what Jesus is going to do with every Sabbath day healing is, in a way, invite the Pharisees to be more thoughtful in their discipleship, to be more careful in their obedience. What was the purpose of the law? What's the why behind the what? And does this what actually accomplish the why better than what you're describing for this circumstance? It has to be situation specific. Proving contraries always does. It has to be an individual approach in every set of circumstances. And what's the best thing to do right here? I'm not trying to wiggle my way out of a single jot and I'm not trying to rationalize my way around a single tittle. I trust the law because I trust the lawgiver. But what would the lawgiver have me do right now? For me to understand that, yes, I will have to be closer to the Spirit than scribes. And I'll have to be more careful in my obedience than a Pharisee would ever be. I really pray that makes sense. Oh, and along those lines, when he talks about it's not just doing, but it's teaching. Remember that? If, if you break this and teach other people to break it, ooh, that, that's the worst thing you could do. If you do it and teach others to do it, then that's the best possible approach. And in the, in the context of rules and exceptions, for example, if we make an exception because we understand the situation, but then end up teaching other people that that exception now replaces the rule, that's dangerous. Because now you've knocked down the fence altogether. Now there is no exception because there is no rule, and it's total anarchy. Sadly, is the direction society seems to be going in. So be very careful about making your exception somebody else's new rule. Don't teach men so. Don't make your specific circumstance into some new universal. Unfortunately, society seems to be doing that. Okay? And you probably have a few things, a few examples you may be thinking of. That's good. Keep thinking about them. Now, for the rest of what we'll see in Matthew chapter 5, we're about to the halfway point uh, of, of, our, of this sermon. 
uh, or this part of the sermon, I should say, halfway through Matthew 5. But for the rest of it, Jesus is going to teach. It's in light of what we just saw about the law. Because Jesus is going to take the law and build upon it in a way that fulfills the law without destroying it. He's going to give us some really concrete examples here. In fact, he's going to give us six of them. They're called the antitheses because anti is against. And so here's this thesis that the law of Moses gives. You can't do this or you must do that. And Jesus is going to offer an antithesis, an antithesis that in some ways, though, in reality is a higher synthesis than just some kind of oppositional antithesis. Is this making sense? This is Hegelian dialectics, I'm sorry. Hegel talked about, here's the idea, that's the thesis. Here's its opposite, there's its antithesis. That's just proving contraries, by the way. And if you can prove them in such a way that they're both equally balanced out and they offset each other's vices with the opposite virtue, then what do you end up with at the end? A higher unifying synthesis. That's what Hegel's dialectics were all about. Okay, and it's just proving contraries in a, in a philosophical form. Uh, that's what Jesus is going to do with these antitheses. Law says this, but I say this. Do you see how they're related? In fact, do you see how my antithesis takes the thesis and brings it up a notch to a higher synthesis? This is going to be Christ showing us how to build upon law without destroying law. How to fulfill without destroying and so here's the ones he's going to pick. He'll tackle anger in verses 21 to 26. He'll talk about immorality in 27 to 30. He'll deal with relationships. I mean, marriage specifically, but it can be expanded out to other relationships in 31 and 32. He'll talk about honesty and integrity from 33 to 37. Reciprocity is one way to describe what he teaches in 38 through 42. Just again, how do we, what's, what's reciprocal you do something, how do I respond to it? How do I reciprocate? That's the, the second to last one. And then the final one from 43 to 47 is how do you deal with interpersonal conflict? It's really interesting how much of this has to do with, oh, the rough edges that we tend to rub off on one another. Uh, this is the sociology of religion more than just the theology. Because sociology, we're, we're, we're here in the mix of society. And yeah, it'd be easy to be a monk somewhere in some monastery especially if it's a monastery of one, but how do we do it around other people? Because that's where anger comes and immorality occurs and, and honesty and integrity are of so essential a nature. Conflict and reciprocity, oh yeah. How do we get along with one another? Jesus cares intensely about that because the Father loves all of his children, Jew and Gentile alike. By the way, some have wondered, wait, six though? Why six? I thought the, isn't the great symbolic number for completeness and totality seven? Why stop short? To which I would say, because the seventh is up to you. To think that Jesus is only raising the bar on these six things, and that's exactly what he's doing. The law says this, let me raise the bar. Let me help your righteousness, righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm going to raise the bar in all of these aspects of life. But to think there's only six areas for improvement? <laughs> oh, no. Like King Benjamin said, I can't even brainstorm all the ways that you can sin. But you're probably going to be creative about that. In which case, there has to be more than six ways to improve or repent. 
So I'll let you sit with the seventh and let that seventh come up over and over and over, whichever the seventh might be, in your specific circumstance. How will you raise the bar in some other aspect of your life? When you run up to, against it, jump back to the Sermon on the Mount and do what Jesus did. I mean, after six practice sessions, I hope we can do the seventh on our own. So, here's the first. Verse 21 and 22, as far as anger is concerned. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time. And that's the formula Jesus is going to keep coming back to. He's going to compare the past to the present and raise the bar. Okay? It'll be like, you've heard, or you've read, or it's been said, or the law says. That's the first, that's the past. And then he'll say, but I say, and that's the new law. That's the new level, of the, the raised bar. So, you've heard it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill. I mean, that's the sixth commandment. Everybody knows that one. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. And yes, it was a harsh judgment. But that's the law. So what's the new law? As the new Moses is coming down from the new Sinai, Jesus says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And in fact, the third Nephi version says his judgment, not just the judgment. His judgment is far more personal. It's not just some impersonal law there, but it's another person judging you. And you know what? They may be wrong in their judgment, but who cares? Because their judgment determines their perception of you, and that's what matters to them. So even if you're in the right and they're in the wrong, oh, you shove it in their face and get angry back at them, and then they're going to misjudge you, but they'll judge you nonetheless. And it will be a negative judgment that you might not be able to overcome for your sake or for theirs. So be careful about that. He goes on, Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, this is strong stuff. What it boils down to is this anger that's leading to these kinds of outbursts. And he gives us three different examples of the outburst. But start with the anger itself that motivates them. Because the ultimate outburst is the one that the, ten, that the, sixth, that the sixth commandment was trying to, to avoid. The outburst of anger into murder. You see what Jesus is doing? If anger leads to murder and we don't want to murder, well, let's back up a, a step or 20 and not even get angry. Because if you're not angry, you'll never kill someone out of anger. You remember in the Garden of Eden when the serpent asks Eve, did God really say not to eat the fruit? She says, oh yeah, he said not to eat it. In fact, he said not even to touch it. Ah, two lines in the sand. Because if you never cross the first, it's impossible to cross the second. Make sense? So to see this, let's go to the root emotion that might eventually erupt into that action. Jesus is so good at that. The law tends to, to outlaw only actions. And it won't even... T elder, elder judge, Justice Oaks, down H. Oaks, not just of the Quorum of the Twelve, but Justice Oaks of the University of Chicago Law School, and Justice Oaks of the Utah State Supreme Court, and Justice Oaks that was almost called to the United States Supreme Court when he was called to the, Lord, to the Lord's Supreme Court instead. He's the one that talked about clean hands and a pure heart. And hands are the outward action. Heart is the inner emotion that tends to drive it. And he said, from his legal expertise, 
that the law only deals with actions, or at least only brings up thoughts and desires and internal emotions once an action has actually occurred. That would differentiate between manslaughter and murder, for example, because was the emotion there? Was it premeditated? Was it angry? And so, and so forth. But just the anger, if it never erupts into the action, well, you can't legislate against that. Well, unless you're the Lord. And that's what the Lord is legislating against. Let's not worry about mere action. Let's dig deeper into underlying emotion. Because then we might actually solve the, the problem instead of just masking symptoms. That's when you've got a good doctor. When instead of just, oh, here's something that'll get rid of the symptom. No, no, no. I want to cure the disease. Here the disease is anger and it's got to go. Now notice the language here. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Now that one is like, oh, so glad you said that. He didn't. In the JST, in the Third Nephi version, the phrase without a cause is nowhere present. So the Lord is not just outlawing unjustifiable anger. He's outlined justifiable anger too. Really? Whoa, that righteousness is going to have to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, you think? Earlier when it was, blessed are you if they persecute you without a cause <laughs> in that light. If they accuse you falsely for my sake. If it's true, you probably deserved it. But that's on the receiving end. On the giving end, don't assume that anyone ever deserves it. It's amazing that the standard the Lord is calling us up to. Okay? Turn the other cheek. We'll see in a moment. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, actually, I'm even going to forgive them if they know what they do. At least I'll give them the opportunity to repent. In this case, there is no cause even for well-caused anger. We've even got to overcome that. That is a tall order. Now go back to the text and notice what the Lord says oh, in three different ways. The first we've talked about at length. If you're angry with your brother, without a cause, with a cause, any kind of anger, be careful because you'll be in danger of the judgment, his judgment, the perception that you're leaving in the other person that is now treating you like an enemy, justifiable or not. Second, be careful if you call your brother Raka because you'll be in danger of the council. And then third, be careful that you don't call him fool, or you'll be in danger of hellfire. Now the consequences seem to be escalating. We went from his judgment, that's just his perception, who cares, to an actual council. Uh-oh, now are there other people? Is, is this how I'm being viewed by, by the council itself? And then third, even worse, is this really what I've become? I'm in danger of hellfire now? So often we just think, well, that's the only person that thinks I'm that way. And that's on them. That's a misperception. Well, keep acting that way and you'll have more and more people that would back up that view. And keep treating more and more people like that. And these are no longer isolated incidences. This is enough for God to judge you that, yeah, that's actually really what you're like. That's not one person's misperception. The only misperception is the one you've been having of yourself as you've gone around trying to justify every outburst and say that every bit, bit, piece of anger on your part, it's everyone else's fault. No, I think you're the common denominator here. 
and you've got some changing to do. I know I've felt that in myself. As I, because it's not just anger that he's talking about. The Greek word itself can also suggest things like irritation, things like frustration. Often I've tried to, to calm myself and just, or, or calm someone else, my wife especially, and was like, honey, it's just calm down, calm down. I'm like, I'm not mad, I'm not mad, I'm just frustrated. Same thing. And it's because of this, just justifiable, it doesn't matter. I remember when I was in Tennessee, we had this, this convention of husbands and wives that, that were institute directors across the South. And we were just trying to figure out how to be better for our students and help build the programs. And we did this panel discussion with a bunch of couples to talk about couples stuff and marriage and how to improve that so we can be better examples to the rising generation. And there was this one wonderful old timer about to retire, well-respected, uh, amazing institute director, amazing teacher of the gospel. I believe he was a state president at the time in Louisiana, if I remember. And he made the most hilarious point. He said, you know, when I was, we were talking about parenting. He said, when I was a young father, I was very even-tempered. And to that point, we're thinking, wow, he always kept things in control. Just nice and calm and chill, just even-tempered. That's not what he meant. He said, I was always even-tempered. And then with a twinkle in his eye, he explained what he meant by that. He said, oh yeah, I was mad all the time. <laughs> we just died laughing. But we also realized, ah, I might be guilty as charged. I'm even-tempered because my temper is always on. It's always high, but at least it's even. And I get frustrated or angry about just about everything. Oh, that's something that I need to work on. And thankfully, I'm working on it. I hope my children are noticing. Uh, and though I'm not the strict disciplinarian, I'm not trying to bust them left and right. Uh, and I keep telling myself it's not out of anger. I do worry sometimes is, as far as their perception, their judgment, am I still even-tempered because I'm frustrated all the time? Make sense? There's, there's something, even the Greek word here comes from a word meaning to well up or to team. It's like something swelling within us. And is that, what, what's, what emotion is swelling within you? Reproving betimes with sharpness is necessary, but only when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And then showing forth an, a greater outpouring of love, lest your children or anyone else esteem you to be their enemy. That, that's, I, I, we've got room for improvement. I know I do. The other thing there is that people have often wondered is, what's up with raka? What does that mean? And anytime you see a word that isn't translated, it suggests that it's not perfectly translatable. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, you see curalams and cumons, for example. What the heck is that? I don't know, just some animal. I don't know what it is. So it's a curalam, it's a cumon. That's what they call it. Well, I don't know the modern equivalent. In this case, uh, raka. I've never called anyone raka. Or have I? It's interesting if you dig into that word, it's some kind of Aramaic word with a Chaldean origin. Okay. What does it mean? Well, by most uh, estimations, it means something like empty or foolish or worthless. Like you're empty-headed. You're an idiot. You're, you're worthless. Yeah, there, there's nothing up going on upstairs between your ears. And we have all kinds of words for that, right? 
And pick your language. And, and I'm sure there's equivalence in every language under the sun. And then other things that we go even beyond that. What I love about the use of the, of the word raka is it just leaves it in its original. And if you think about the history of Aramaic and Chaldean, this, this was some linguistic things that the Jews picked up during their Babylonian captivity. It's interesting to just ponder, so is that something that they heard the, the Babylonians say to each other? Or that they were called all the time by their Babylonian captors? Oh, raka. It's like, what does that mean? What's the Hebrew word for that? I don't know, but it doesn't... I, but I never feel good when they say it to me. Uh, there's a tone there. There's a, there's a bad emoji that goes along with it. And, and I don't know what raka means, but you don't want to be called that. Well, once you know that, then you don't have to know what it means. You just know the circumstances you would use to, co to call someone else that. And I just worry sometimes about the name calling we pick up in Babylon. And the kinds of, not just the words we use, but the tone that we use and the kind of in-your-face shaming that so often occurs in talk radio or in debate or comments online or in social media. It's, it's a nightmare. And people are yelling raka left and right or whatever the equivalent might be. We've got to rise above it. And that's what Jesus is asking of us. It's not enough not to kill. Don't even get angry. Don't even say raka or whatever it is. Don't call them fools. Don't. The irony is it seems like the outcome is intensifying from his judgment to the council to hellfire, but the action is decreasing in intensity. From murder to anger to raka to fool. Don't justify our, we can't justify ourselves. We certainly can't justify outward action. And we need to stop justifying inner emotion too, if it's a negative one. We can work on those. And the Lord will help us. Now the Lord's not yet done with this concept of anger uh, or friction between fellows. He says something else in verse 23 and 24 that I find absolutely fascinating. He says, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and that's what a good practicing Jew would do frequently, bring your lamb without blemish, bring your two turtle doves, bring whatever animal is meant to represent the animal in you, and bring that gift to the altar. Offer it to him on the feast days and so forth. Now, in the third Nephi version of that, the Lord makes it far more personal. It's not just bring your gift to the altar. It's if ye shall come unto me. Ah, that's... That's what the altar is. It's not just some nameless altar. It's the throne of the Lord himself. It's not just a gift I'm bringing. It's myself that I'm bringing. A broken heart and a contrite spirit. I'm trying to come unto God. Now, if that's the case, and then he goes on, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee? I mean, there's just some grudge. There's some ill feeling. Uh, you, he's, whether it's true judgment or false judgment, whether it was justified or not, he has brought you into judgment. Maybe it hasn't escalated to the council yet, or maybe you're still far, far away from hellfire. But doesn't matter. Thy brother hath ought, something, anything against thee. Then what are you supposed to do? Here's the Lord's counsel. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Now, what I love about this is the order 
that the Lord recommends to us. First, so, so walk it through step by step. The first step was, I want to come unto God. I want to bring him my gift. Ah, yes. Well, that is the good thing to do first, since the first great commandment is to love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. That's what you're trying to do. Bring him the gift. Wonderful. But what if, in your pursuit of the first great commandment, you are doing damage to the second great commandment, which the Lord says is like unto it, namely, love your neighbor as yourself? You see, in this case, you've got a brother out there somewhere that has ought against you. And if you are breaking the second great commandment, then that's going to get in the way of you keeping the first great commandment. Even when the first great commandment is your first priority and should be. Now, to keep it first, this gift that you brought to the altar, leave it right there. You can't offer it yet because you're not right with other people. You can't connect vertically because you're not right horizontally. But keep the first commandment first. Elder Christofferson just gave an amazing talk at BYU on exactly that issue. Because, unfortunately, we live in a world that prioritizes the second great commandment over the first. And we do all kinds of damage to the first great commandment in our zeal to keep the second great commandment. Does that make sense? Go listen to the talk or read the talk from Elder Christofferson, and it, may, it will make sense. Uh, and we think it's all about love, and so we'll do damage to law in order to, quote-unquote, love someone. When that's a love without limits, it's a love with... It's a so-called, it's an easy love. It's breaking the, the letter, claiming the spirit, but it's destroying instead of fulfilling because real love wants what's best for the person in the long run. And that's not always just avoiding ruffled feathers and rocked boats. Okay, great talk. So go learn from Elder Christofferson with that. But what's interesting here, though, is to keep the first great command, it's such a, a tricky balance. This is proving contraries at its finest and at its most difficult. Keep the first commandment first by going to the altar. That's my goal. I want to connect with God. Uh, ooh, but there's things I've done with the second great commandment that are going to interfere with my first. In fact, think about sacred places where we are going to connect vertically with God. But we're doing it with fellow saints with whom I must be reconciled. Because if there's any friction horizontally, it will lead to interference vertically. It's the radio that's just a little off the, the right station. And because it's a little off, then the sound doesn't come through clearly. And so before I raise my voice to heaven collectively, is there anything that would restrain the spirit? Anything horizontally that's out of place to the point that the Holy Ghost, if you're not one, you're not mine, the Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so if there's some horizontal friction, no wonder I'm going to need to fix that first so that the Spirit can be unrestrained in what I'm trying to do in terms of connecting with God. I, I hope this is making sense. I really pray the Spirit is helping you see where you are in all of this. He's, he's trying to help me and do the same for me. But the interesting thing there is, that little detail of leave the gift there. Because I think one of the concerns that we sometimes have is instead of correcting, we overcorrect. That's the, the challenge of proving contraries. It's really hard to stay in balance in the Goldilocks zone. And we did it wrong on one extreme, then we end up correcting by doing it wrong on the other extreme. And it's still wrong. And so we're like, okay, I've been too close to God 
or what I thought of God. I was pharisaical in my obedience and that alienated my family members. And so I'm now going to chuck God so I can be close to my family. What? No, 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 no. You're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Now that, that's, that's an overcorrection. But we see it all the time. I won't keep the first great commandment anymore because it's interfering with me keeping the second. We can't, let that ha- that, we can't let that happen any more than letting the second great commandment interfere with the first. So first I go to the altar. I'm trying to connect with God. There's something on the second that's keeping me from it. My priority is still to be right with God. I'm going to leave my gift right here at the altar. I'm just going to pause the process until I can do it correctly. I'm not leaving the altar behind permanently. So then I go and I try to reconcile with my brother, which he may or may not allow me to do. But I'm going to try. How will I try? He's going to give us that in just a second in the next couple of verses. But I'm now pausing first great commandment, still keeping it as my priority, so that I can work things out with the second great commandment in order to then return to the first great commandment in such a way that the spirit is unrestrained and I can connect with God. Because I've been trying to stay connected with family, friends, others, even enemies. As I've pondered, I just finished writing a whole paper on this as I just really tried to wrestle with the concepts. Because how do you balance both first and second great commandments? How do you hold to the law of God and still exhibit love to your fellow man and woman? Especially those that disagree with you. And it hit me as we talk about order, that there may be a difference between the order of priority and the order of implementation. That my priority will always remain, I'm good with God and I will keep his commandments. And if it was just me on an island somewhere, I'd do it as perfectly as I possibly could. But since no man is an island, and I'm here in a diverse society with cultural conflict left and right, I wonder if the best way to keep the order of priority, first great commandment and then second great commandment, would be to pursue both commandments in a different order of implementation. And my order of implementation, my priority is still fixed on God, but I'm going to try to build bridges. I'm going to try to hear out people of opposite views. I'm going to try to reach out to alienated family members or friends and understand where they're coming from. I'm really going to do that and maintain friendships and relationships as much as I possibly can. So that, hopefully, they'll understand why I'm returning to the altar to give this gift. That they'll understand why, that my, that, in other words, my ground rule is I w- there will not be contention, because that's of the devil. That's Jesus in 3 Nephi. I will not fight you over these things. But neither will I compromise my covenants. I need you to know how important you are. So that when I show you how important God is to me, it doesn't come across as unloving. It doesn't come across as adversarial. This is extremely hard what the Lord is asking us to do. But he's asking us to do it. And he's trying to show us the way. So if we can hold to a commitment of non-contention, 
I will not be angry with my brother, even if there's a cause. No contention, no disputation. My attitude, my approach will always be Christ-like. If I can maintain that, then I pray they will be understanding if we disagree. Because I am going back to the altar to give God the gift that I left there. That first priority will always hold. I just hope you understand now why I'm doing that. Because I have, I've been striving to understand where you're coming from as well. In fact, that's what Jesus gets at in verse 25 and 26. And this is a difficult passage as well. He says, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. In some ways that goes back to raka and fool and judgment and counsel and hellfire. Because this is escalating pretty quickly too. We went from, from judge to officer to prison pretty fast. And now that I'm here in prison, there's no way I can work my way out. How am I going to pay the uttermost farthing, whether it's deserved or undeserved? So how do I avoid that? Well, agree with thine adversary quickly. I mean, you're in the way with him. You're standing at odds and you're butting heads. Just agree. To which I think the justice side of us would say, no, over my dead body, or better yet, over his or hers. I'm not going to agree with my adversary. They're the adversary. They're wrong. I'm right. In fact, I'm keeping the first great commandment. So to heck with the second great commandment in this case. No, you got to hold on to both. How do we do it? Well, quickly, in other words, in the short term, let's agree. Or better said, let's be agreeable. I mean, we're in the way and at this route or this at this rate, we're never going to pass either one. Such oppositionality. It's interesting because up to this point, it's always been brother, 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 brother. And now what's he say? Adversary, adversary. Oh, yikes. What's the difference between a brother and an adversary? Not much. Then again, everything. It just takes a little bit of negativity. And a true brother can become an adversary. On the flip side, maybe it just takes some positivity. Some kind-heartedness, some open-mindedness. To turn an adversary, in terms of one's positions, into a brother or sister, in terms of one's emotions. You see, understand the difference? There are plenty of people that I deeply disagree with when it comes to their, their views of the church and the gospel and their approach to trying to dismantle it. But I can agree to disagree with them without becoming disagreeable. I ended up having lunch with one fairly recently that had not only attacked the church and still does, but it attacked me. And hopefully it doesn't do that anymore because I consider them a friend. And we had a great conversation and tried to understand where one another was coming from. And, and I, there's so much of their position as far as their hurt and what they've been through that I can agree with them to the point that I don't see them as my adversary. I see them as a brother or sister. 
Now, does that mean I agree with their position or their approach? Absolutely not. And they know that. But the interesting thing about this, again, short-term versus long-term, if I'm in the way with my adversary, and I am unbending and uncompromising, and even worse, inhospitable towards them, unbrotherly, unkind, unchrist-like, then are they ever going to change? No. And in fact, they'll now start feeling justified in their adversarial approach to me, since I acted like an adversary to them to begin with. Does that make sense? And now it's, I, oh, they're, they're angry, and they feel like they have a cause. And I'm angry, and I feel like I have one too. And uh, I'm fortunately, I've given them their cause by the way that I treated them. Elder Hales taught this once in an amazing conference talk called Christian Courage, where he basically said, the worst thing you can do when somebody attacks you and says you're not a Christian is to respond in an unchristian way, because that ends up proving them right. <laughs> you, you get that? It's interesting irony. But to see what's happening here of agreeing with thy adversary in the moment, in the short term, doing it quickly, building on common beliefs, trying to validate whatever positions that you can and empathize with whatever emotions they feel as a result. That to me, again, is where proving contraries is a great blessing. Because usually my opponent, my adversary, is just holding more strongly to the opposite side of the contrary than I am. And they wanted more diversity when I wanted more unity. Or they wanted more grace when I, needed, I saw the need for works. Or they were all mercy and I see the need for justice or vice versa. But by seeing the two sides of the issue, I can agree with my adversary quickly while I'm in the way with them. And that will, avoid, that will help them avoid misjudging me as an adversary myself. It will uh, help them avoid casting me off to the officer or worse yet into a prison of their own perception when they feel like, yep, that's the, just the jerk that Halverson is and he always will be and I feel justified in treating him like that. Instead of rising to higher moral ground and having them th rethink things like, man, for a Mormon, he's a lot less judgmental than I thought. He's a lot more open-minded. He's a lot more kind even when I wasn't very kind to him. That's key. And best of all, the original Greek here backs up that view. We read it in King James English, like, agree with them. Just tell them they're right. And uh, that is such a, an abdication of, what we, of things that we know are true. That, so agree here doesn't mean to deny your own beliefs. It, the original Greek is not agree, it's be agreeing or be agreeable. It's an attitude, it's an approach, it's a state of mind, it's an underlying emotion to be able to say, and we say this all the time, to uh, agree to disagree. And I'm not going to become disagreeable in the process. In fact, the, the literal Greek word comes from a combination of the word for good and the word for mind. So can we be good-minded toward another person? Can we recognize their shared humanity and give them the benefit of the doubt that they are striving for good purposes, just like I am, just going about it a different way? And where can we find points of agreement so that we can work together? And how can we clarify the different premises that we're basing our understandings on 
because that'll keep us from really fighting over conclusions that will end up being unbending. This, these aren't interpersonal conflicts. <laughs> this friction between friends or family or brothers and sisters and adversaries and the whole bit. This is really, really hard. But this is what the Lord is calling us to become. Someone like Him. Now, I apologize if I beat a dead horse on that. We just, I'd rather beat a dead horse than have us beat up on each other. Uh, so keep wrestling with that yourself. But let's move forward to the next antithesis. And this one has to do, if the first was anger, the second is immorality. Verse 27 and 28, he begins, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Here's the old view. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Seventh commandment and a key one. But I say unto you, so here's raising the bar, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If the emotion is there, then it didn't matter that the action wasn't. Again, that goes totally against the legal framing that we saw from Justice Dallin H. Oaks. That le legally, it's not a crime until an act took place. So, oh yeah, go ahead and think bad thoughts all you want. As long as they don't emerge in action, criminal action, then it's fine. Now, if the action occurs, now we're going to take thoughts into consideration. But not until then. The Lord doesn't act that way. The Lord is, let's nip this in the bud. Let's work on inner emotion. Let's perfect inner attribute. Action will then take care of itself. You see, by the way, the, the first, the, the, if the emotion inside, what does he call it? Lust? To lust after a woman? That lust actually does lead to a preliminary action, which is to look. So it's lust to look to action. Adultery, in this case. If you think about King David... And his ultimate sin was sending Uriah to his death. The sin right before that, uh, in both intensity and chronology, was committing adultery with Bathsheba. But what led to that? It was his eye looking at something he shouldn't have looked at. It wasn't just the sight of it. It was dwelling upon that sight and looking until lust began to emerge. Remember when there's... Hunger and bait together, that's when temptation forms. Well, some underlying hunger that was then awakened when he saw something he shouldn't have seen. And then he let that, that bait and that hunger come together until he committed. He didn't just feel the temptation, but gave into it. You see a similar problem in Potiphar's wife back in Genesis 39. When what was her, her worst sin was wanting to commit adultery with, with Joseph. But what was her first sin? It says that she cast her eye and looked upon him and then allowed lust to develop as a result. Now, since this seems to be an eye problem growing out of an emotion problem, notice what the Lord says about the eye in verse 29 and 30. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. I mean, hey, better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two, right? Uh, if it's not an eye problem, maybe it's a hand problem, then keep reading. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Whew, talk about desperate times calling for desperate measures. Yeah, it does call for desperate measures. 
let's not just eliminate the symptom, let's cure the disease. Let's not just eliminate the outward action, let's avoid the source of that action. Let's dig up the weed from the very root. Otherwise, we're going to be weeding over and over and over again. The same problem will just keep reappearing. So let's dig deeper. And in this case, is it your eye? Pluck it out. Is it your hand? Cut it off. Seriously? Now, I want to pause here because this is one of those occasions where Jesus is going to use this same metaphor later on. And I'm really going to dig into some of the other meanings of that metaphor when we get to it later in Matthew 18. It's mentioned in Mark chapter 9, and the JST of that passage from Mark 9 is amazing. Uh, but that's more of an external, outward, kind of relational kind of example about other people offending and pluck them out. Okay? This one's more personal. And so I'll just stick to this text and we'll save some of those other insights for later. In this one, the problem's in, in, internal. It's my eye. It's my hand. And I've got to get rid of it. I need to pluck it out. Because if I can do that, again, this is uprooting anger. It'll never result in murder. This is uprooting lust. It will never result in adultery. Let's cut off the eye, pluck it out and cast it from me so that my entire body doesn't get condemned by an act of adultery. It's like it's bad enough as it is. Let's, let's halt things here. And you can think about pornography issues. You can think about minor, if we can even call immorality minor, but smaller forms of such sin. And how do we overcome that? Just get rid of it. Now, here's something we need to understand. And this comes from the help of the Third Nephi version. And I explained this at length back in that Third Nephi uh, lesson, the Book of Mormon year, but it's worth repeating here. Because the, the Nephite version, the Nephites are not told to pluck out their eye. They're not told to cut off their hand. Instead, they're told this, 3 Nephi 12, 29 and 30. Behold, I give unto you a commandment that ye suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. What things? Well, that lust that's causing you to look upon a woman. That's, that's leading you to basically, for all intents and purposes, already be guilty of the feelings of adultery, even if you're not guilty of the act of adultery. So, what's the Lord's solution? Suffer none of these things to enter your heart. For it is better that you should deny yourselves of these things, wherein you will take up your cross, than that you should be cast into hell. In some ways, this is a, a less desperate uh, bit of counsel. To the Jews, if your eye's the problem, pluck it out. To the Nephites, it's still not an eye problem alone. It's a heart problem. So suffer none of these things to enter your heart. Now, this is the part that blew me away once when I was pondering it. The difference between the two. Which is easier? Because the ultimate line, we're, we're drawing several lines in the sand. The one that already existed was, thou shalt not commit adultery. What Jesus is saying to the to the Jews in, in Matthew's account is, how about looking with lust? Let's draw the line there and say, don't do that. In fact, let's make it impossible to look with lust. <laughs> Pluck your eye out, get rid of it. I mean, can you imagine somebody walking into church with two eye patches on as they're kind of feeling their way down the aisles and you're like, whoa, what happened to you? And he just said, oh, I used to have a pornography problem. I don't anymore. I can't anymore. Wow, yikes. 
But here's the irony. Is what that person just said true? Is it physically impossible to have a pornography problem now? Well, physically impossible to look at it, but still, unfortunately, very possible to be feeling the feelings of lust that motivated that looking and ultimately could lead to the act of adultery. So what does Jesus say to the Nephites? There's a third line in the sand. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's not just don't look with lust. It's don't even let it enter your heart. Nip it in the bud at that point. Don't even let the seed germinate, let alone grow. Now, I used to high jump in high school, not just uh, long jump and triple jump. Yeah, I wasn't that good at any of them, but it was fun. Less running than all my friends that did like the mile and stuff. Yikes. <laughs> but with high jump, there's an obvious principle here. The higher the bar, the harder to clear. Well, duh. You don't have to be a high jumper to know that. But here's the irony when it comes to what the Lord's doing here. He's going to raise the bar either case. The, other, the first bar, the law of Moses bar, was pretty low. Just don't commit adultery. Okay. But you could picture somebody, but I can get as, really, as close to the line as I want, right? And I'm not, if, if I technically am not crossing it, and sadly we see that kind of justification and rationalization in our day all the time. Well, I didn't technically, like, oh, for all intents and purposes, you did. So let's draw another line before. And in the Jews, don't even look with lust. But to the Nephites, let's raise the bar. Let's draw another line in the sand, even higher and holier. Don't even let it enter your heart. Yikes, that's... Really? Can I even control just a thought that passes through my mind? Okay, no, no, no. That's, that's the difference between see and look. If you saw it, not your fault. It's if you look, that becomes the problem. What's the old uh, proverb? You can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep it from building its nest there. Don't let it nest. And that's what the Lord is saying to the Nephites. No nesting. Now, the irony is, higher the bar, the harder to clear. But not in this case. In terms of keeping the ultimate commandment of not committing adultery. What I mean by this is, picture in your mind a cliff. Where it's flat, plateau, and there's a giant boulder on top. And the boulder is lust. But it's stable. It's stationary. It's there. It's within us somewhere. But it hasn't been awakened and so there is this boulder. Now, on the as the plateau gets to the edge, it starts turning into a downward slope. But it's a gradual one. Now, that gradual slope leads to a, a steeper slope, which then leads to an absolute sheer cliff with sharp rocks below. And my question is, who is standing sentinel at each of the places where the, where the decline gets steeper? At the edge, before it becomes the, the sheer cliff, it's thou shalt not commit adultery. At the previous point, the, one next, the next one higher, it's don't look with lust. But the first one, where flat starts to go to, to downward slope, that's the, the thought, the feeling, the desire, just the heart entering in. Now, if the ultimate goal here is to make sure that the rock doesn't fall down, to, down the cliff, which sentinel would you rather be? Which one has the easiest job? You see, if the, the mosaic sentinel, right at, the, at cliff's edge, 
is standing there saying, thou shalt not commit adultery. But you can do whatever you want up to that point. And so the boulder of lust begins to rock and rumble and then begins to roll. And it begins to pick up speed as lust in your heart leads to lust in the eye. And, and it begins to build and build momentum until you are so drawn to adultery that that poor mosaic sentinel is standing there ready to get crushed by the rock as it's, as it's rolling recklessly down the hill. Yeah, good luck stopping adultery at that point. You've let lust run amok up to that point. Okay, fine. Then be the sentinel a little higher up. Be Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount saying, don't even look with lust. Tear your eye out if you have to. But can you picture some rationalizing audience member saying, but I can think bad thoughts, right? Uh, I, I know you said that the pure will see God, but uh, some level of impurity surely is justifiable as long as I don't act on it, right? You're not going to... Uh, you're not going to condemn us for our thoughts. See, my hands are still clean, even though my heart isn't pure. Well, fine. You want to be that sentinel? It's easier than the, guy, the poor guy at the cliff, but the boulder has already begun to bounce downhill. And it is building momentum in the mind. And it's really hard to keep your eyes shut after that. So which sentinel would I rather be? The one right at the edge of the plateau. That when the rock first starts to rumble and a bird lands on my head or a lustful thought enters my mind or some kind of feeling begins to trouble my heart, I don't suffer that thing to fully enter in. I shoo that bird away and look to something else and, and go to a better place instead of looking at stones I might turn into bread. No, go to the temple. Go, go to a high mountain. Go pull yourself out of that situation and out of that mental space. Resist the temptation before it becomes too big to resist. And when the rock just slows, a little gentle rumble and I just put my hand there and go, nope, we don't go there. Not only did I make my job really easy, but those two poor sentinels down the hill, I probably saved their lives. I definitely saved my own, spiritually speaking. Get it? Anytime we see the very beginnings, that's the time to say no and move forward. 31 and 32, the Lord's next piece of advice has to do with relationships, specifically marriage. This short passage, though, is, is a tough one. 31 and 32, it hath been said, here's the old level of the bar, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. So at least put something down in paper saying, well, you burnt my toast. Uh, uh, I, I didn't like the, the, the sandals you always wore. Give them at least some writing. Write it down. But I say unto you, that's, that's no-fault divorce laws, and that's not where the Lord's coming from. I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, something that serious, a boulder that's come down the mountain and, and crushed the people below, if it wasn't for something as serious as that, 
then your divorce causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now, in our day of no-fault divorce laws, in our days of rampant infidelity, actually, if it were only infidelity, this wouldn't be a problem, because that's what would justify those divorces. And even still, it's not automatic grounds for divorce. It just makes divorce justifiable. You still need to ponder and pray and if God joined you, you cannot let mere man tear you asunder. God, who made, who is part of, the, hopefully, part of the decision of the marriage, needs to be part of the decision of the divorce. And if he's part of that decision, and the decision was made with him and through him, then he's not going to judge you harshly, since he was part of the decision-making process to begin with. I hope that makes sense. But it's not just adultery or immorality that's running rampant in our society. It's, it's simple selfishness. It's minor things that end up being blown into major things that now become the grounds of a divorce that in reality is pretty groundless. Again, no fault divorce. And as we've seen several times here, without a cause, get rid of that. How forgiving can we really be? How selfless can we truly become? Now, in a Jewish moment, that, yes, you're right, Moses allowed for divorce, and Jesus is going to talk about that later also. He tells him at that point, the only reason he did it was because of the hardness of your hearts. You really want to use that as your justification? I hope not. But also from a legal perspective, if there was just cause for divorce, and then the divorce was valid, if that is the case, then getting remarried is not an adulterous relationship because there's no marriage that it's interfering with. On the other hand, if the divorce was unjustified, if the divorce was invalid, let's say that there's a man that wants to abandon his wife, but the judge says, no, there's no cause, which a judge could say before no divorce laws went on the books which is in fairly recent memory, okay? Last couple of decades. It's interesting how recent a phenomenon this is. But to see if it's not justifiable and the judge says, no, you can't abandon your wife for that, that reason. That, that's, that's not a reason. That's an excuse. And I'm not going to give you that excuse. You can't rationalize this away. You're responsible. So man up, take, take responsibility and be a better husband. She'll be a better wife. Okay. And if they followed that counsel and tried harder, this could be a beautiful marriage. But imagine a husband that was unwilling to do so. And so instead of accepting the judge's determination and saying, no, I'm still married, he goes on and acts as if he were divorced, even though he isn't. And under those kinds of pretenses, he convinces some other new, new bride, probably soon to be victim, to marry him and probably told the, the, his previous wife, yep, I, it, the divorce is final and I'm out of here. And she walks away devastated, heartbroken, but feeling like, okay, I guess I'm single now. Now, if the man who's not technically divorced, but acts like he is, gets remarried, then legally that's bigamy. Legally that is adultery. Uh, and then some other unsus poor unsuspecting guy who goes and falls in love with the ex-wife, who's still technically the wife, if he marries her under that pretense, 
then even through no fault of his own, he's committing adultery because she technically is still married to the first husband. So from a strictly legal perspective, do you understand this verse? That now, because I think unfortunately in our day, people can sometimes take this as there's divorce is never justified and remarrying a divorced person, or if you're a divorced person and you remarry someone else, then by definition, that's adultery and it can never be allowed. Elder Oaks gave a great talk on divorce years ago to say there are times where it's justifiable. There have to be exceptions to that rule. The spirit of the law will help you know if, you, if that applies to you. And it won't be breaking the letter of the law. You'll be fulfilling the letter for, for at least the purpose of the letter through the spirit, like we talked about before. Now, I think it was Elder McConkie that even talked about this being an example of the higher law of divorce is adultery. Uh, he's using that in conjunction with what the Savior says later about the only reason Moses even allowed for the exception about writing the bill of divorcement is because of the hardness of your hearts. And that lower level is because of the low level of living that we mortals are so often guilty of. And so raise the bar yourself and be better than that. Okay, thank you, Elder McConkie, for that explanation. To which I would simply add from this text alone... If, if there's cause for divorce, it better be a good cause. It better be, again, God needs to be part of the decision. And he'll help confirm. I know this, this, is, well, this is tough. This is tricky. I'm trying to balance love and law on this myself because I have friends and family members have been through it. And it's hard. It's heartbreaking for everyone, especially for the children. Through no fault of their own, what, what they're going through. I guess all I would say here, based on what the Lord is teaching, is take your covenants far more seriously than perhaps we sometimes do. For Jesus to call it adultery, boy, that's going to get our attention. And it does. For anyone who's been divorced and been remarried, this is a verse that probably haunts you. On the one hand, maybe it shouldn't haunt you as much as it might, because there is justifiable reason. But maybe it ought to haunt you a little more than it does if the reasons you used were more like excuses to get out of a situation that required more work than you were willing to give. We need to take these, we need to take our covenants seriously. That's all I'm saying. And look for reasons to make things work instead of excuses for why they didn't. We'll wrestle with this concept again later on. No, some, some things are worth wrestling with repeatedly because they're such common issues that we have to deal with. But a few more. Verse 33 to 37. This is now honesty and integrity. And what does the Lord teach? Again, ye have heard that it has been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. That's the old law. What's one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not bear false witness. And that's what he's, he's calling them out for. For swearing yourself, that's swearing falsely. That's perjury. And that's wrong. But how do we elevate that? Notice what he says next. I say unto you, swear not at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Now, that's an interesting list. Those must be things that people tended to swear by. 
Oh, I swear by heaven. I swear by the earth. I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by the hairs of my head. I, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. All those kinds of things. And the Lord's like, really? Why are you, why are you bringing that up? Are you really going to poke yourself in the eye with a needle? That's disgusting. Uh, and what, you're going to swear by the city, by Jerusalem? You don't own it. You're going to swear by heaven or earth? You've got no control in those matters either. So talk about, I mean, a, 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 an oath with no meaning. You can't even back it up. So what's the solution instead? Let your communication be yea, yea. Nay. Nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. The yea, yea, nay, nay, what he's saying essentially is, let your yea be yea. Instead of, well, yea, except under these circumstances, and, and here's the, the asterisk and footnote, and here's all the, the, the fine print at the bottom or on the back of the contract. Uh, I mean, it's yea, yea is... You know, just check the box and say that you agree. Or the nay, except under all these circumstances, and here's my outs and the loopholes and everything else. No. If you say yay, let it mean yay. Let your yes mean yes. If you say no, then end of discussion. That's all it is. No means no. Yes means yes. I love what the Lord is doing here because it's not just don't bear false witness. It's... Why do you have to bear all these witnesses to begin with? Why do you have to have it like written in triplicate with all kinds of legalese and then have it signed and stamped by a notary public? Really? Your word isn't strong enough? Now you have to have lawyers' words and judges' words and the government's word. And it reminds me of seeing like gated communities when they're like, man, that must be safe. Look at all those gates. It's like, why do they need so many gates? This must not be a safe community. You get it? Oh, this, this contract will stand. Look at all of the, the supports that it has. Why does it need so many supports? Can't you just shake on it and give your word? Or does someone's word no longer mean anything? Are we really at that point of not trusting one another? of dishonesty being so rampant and integrity such a rare commodity that I have to swear about everything. That's, that's a rough place to be. So as far as the Lord's concerned, just say yes. I actually remember the first time I bought a car and I was super intimidated because I never bought anything that expensive. It was just going to be this old used car, but I, went, I asked my parents to come in case I needed a cosigner. And I went and... I had done all kinds of homework on the particular vehicle I saw that I wanted and I checked its mileage and all the kind of things that it was went along with it. I looked at all kinds of other places that were selling similar vehicles, looked at their mileage and saw what I thought was a fair price. I wasn't trying to gouge the, the used car dealer, but I didn't certainly didn't want them to gouge me. And so having done that homework and being an, an honest person myself and a trusting person myself, I went in probably naively by worldly standards and went down and said, this is what I think that car is worth. I know you're charging this, but I checked all kinds of other sites and, and places and, and this is what I think yours would be. Uh, and they were like, oh, no, 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 this, this is the price. That's just, I'm like, no, it, that's, you're charging the, the same amount as this one that has way 
lower miles. And so yours should come down because you have higher miles. And it's the same equipment and all kinds of stuff. And the guy was just unbudging. But I felt like truth and justice was on my side. And I wasn't trying to just get away with something. Well, here's where the story gets interesting. The guy, uh, the, the, the salesman was like, well, I can knock off that, you know, 100 bucks here. And I'm like, that doesn't even get close to what I honestly think is a fair price for both of us. And he's like, well, let me, let me talk to my manager. And the manager comes out and was definitely on the dealer's side, obviously, right? And the manager's like, no, well, I can w wiggle a little, I give, give this. And it was so interesting because he wrote, then he wrote down a little poem. This must have been his, his trick that always worked on people. And it just said, roses are red and violets are blue. And then he named the price and said, that's the best we can do. Like, there you go. My mom was actually there present as well. And she, she's a quick wit. And she chimed in from the back and said, oh, well, roses are red, violets are blue. We'll go somewhere else and see what they can do. And inside I'm all, go mom, right? Well, <laughs> dad then stepped in. And dad's approach was amazing. Because I said, no, I really think this is, this is what it's worth. This is what I'm willing to pay. And I can't, not only am I unwilling, I can't afford to go anything beyond this. And, and then the manager started hemming and hawing again. Like, well, but what about, and maybe we can do this. And then all out of the, in the midst of the chaos, dad just stood up. And he said, no. And it was like, we all felt busted. Me and the dealer and the, the salesman and the manager. And it was like, well, my dad's a big guy. And he wasn't angry. He just, it was the voice of clear authority. And he just said, no. And everything just like froze time. And dad said, you don't understand. My son said, this is what I can pay. And this is what I consider the car to be worth. Through your little poem, you already said that's the best you can do. I trust my son's honesty, and I'm trusting your honesty as well. And since those two numbers do not match, I'll take you at your word that that is the best you can do. And so we will leave to find someone else. And we all just kind of sat there in the silence until the manager was like, uh, okay, I mean... I'm sure this wasn't your first time you've bought a car. This is just how we do it. And I, I, you're, you're right. This is not the best we can do. And fine, I think your son's uh, number is fair and, and you can have the car for that price. Is that okay? And my dad was, I think that's fair. And I'm like, I think that's fair. <laughs> and then we, it was so interesting because that's the manager left with like tail between his legs. And now the salesman was, his work was done so he could kind of be on my side. And we were waiting for the finance people to come out. And my mom and dad were out of earshot by then. And I'm just sitting there with this salesman. And he turns to me and he's like, dude, your dad is awesome. <laughs> and I just laughed. I'm like, yeah, he's pretty awesome. More than awesome, he's a man of incredible integrity. And he taught me to try to be that too. And that's all I was trying to do here. It, it, it's just interesting. Let your yay be yay. Let your nay be nay. And then let the chips fall where they may. The next example, the next antithesis is from 38 to 42. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
And if there's anything anybody remembers from the Law of Moses, it seems to be that phrase. Okay? And, you know, it's not as bad as we make it. It's a step up from escalating vengeance. I mean, in some ways, it's, hey, you put my eye out, then I get to put yours out. Instead of, I get to burn down your house and kill you and all your family. Unfortunately, if you think about stories about family feuds, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys, it keeps escalating and vengeance gets worse and worse and worse. At least eye for an eye, truth for, tooth for a tooth is just. It's equal retribution. But that's still too low of a level for the Lord. So what does he say? But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Which, a better translation, don't stand against the evil person. This is part of that agreeing with them in the way, but what really means is be agreeable and have a good mind toward them. So don't, don't resist, don't stand against the evil person. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right hand, turn to him the other also. This is where we get that, that beautiful concept of turning the other cheek. He adds, if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, fine. Let him have thy cloak also. And one more example. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, and the Romans could do that. It's, you have to carry my pack. Uh, we've got long ways to go as an army on these Roman roads, but we're not going to carry it all ourselves. But all I can ask of you is a mile. Okay, fine. If you're compelled to go a mile, what's the Lord say in raising the bar? Go with him twain, which means two. Oh, I, I've got a second mile in me. Oh, one last one. Give to him that asketh thee. And from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. <laughs> Even if they don't have the guts to actually ask you to borrow it, if it looks like they need it, if they would borrow, if they only had the guts to ask, don't make them ask. Just give it to them. Just help them out. It's amazing what the Lord is asking of us in that passage. This is return evil with good. This is go beyond the minimum. This is more than justice. This is mercy. It's more than justice. This is grace. Justice, you get what you deserve. Grace, you get more than you deserve. You get... The Lord just pours out His blessings upon you. You ask Him to carry your sins for a mile, He'll go more than twain. He'll pick them up and never let them down. He'll just suffer for them and forgive you. What the Lord is willing to do is what he's asking us to do if we're going to grow up in him and become as perfect as our Father in heaven. And so get used to looking for ways to go far beyond mere expectation into the unexpected. When people are just amazed that you'd carry a second mile, that you would give without them even asking, that you would turn the other cheek. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, so now we're just going to get walked all over. Ah, I see that you're on the justice side. That's good. Just be careful that your justice doesn't become harshness or vindictiveness. Make sure it's proven by a contrary of mercy and grace. How to keep those in balance? Well, what's the higher synthesis? It's following God. And there are times where God himself says, you got no more cheeks to turn. If you study section, what is it, 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants, for example, there's the Lord's law of war. And there does come a time where you stop turning cheeks because you need to defend your families or your faith. That's good. 
where we need to have boundaries, right? Otherwise, our mercy, unbounded, becomes oh, permissiveness. It becomes codependence, worst case scenario. And that's not what the Lord is asking. I wonder about the detail when it says that if they smite you on your right cheek, then turn it. Because assuming that most people are right-handed, how would I hit you with my right hand and connect with your right cheek? Because if I'm just swinging, you know, get normal uppercut, then, then I'm hitting your left cheek because you're standing opposite me. But if my right hand is going up against your right cheek, what am I kind of doing? One of the, oh, or is this a backhanded slap across the face? Because that's a very different thing than some kind of frontal attack. I'm not defending my family in this case. I'm defending my honor. And is that always worth defending? Or can we just walk past it, get over it? When somebody's honor was attacked in Joseph Smith's day, his advice was simply, walk such things beneath your feet. And he knew what that felt like. If it's just a personal affront, if it's just a personal slight, get over it. But the day will come if you're continuing to be attacked and attacked and you need to defend your family, then you're justified in doing so. Okay, there's a balance here that we're going to need to strike. Verse 30, or 43 and 44 is his next one. And it sort of grows out of the one previous. He says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. And the irony there is, yes, there's a clear verse in Leviticus that says, Love thy neighbor. But nowhere in the Old Testament does it command you to hate your enemy. Unfortunately, human nature, oh yeah, you've heard that it's been said. Oh yeah, people say that all the time. Almost like a natural outgrowth of loving thy neighbor is the justification that, yeah, but you can go ahead and hate your enemy. No wonder that seems to be common law, even though that wasn't the law of Moses. Well, either way, the Lord has a higher bar to raise. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Let's take those two statements and, and converge them Love thy neighbor, hate thine enemy. No, let's get rid of thy neighbor and let's get rid of hate and let's go with love thine enemy. In fact, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Which is a repetition of some of what he was talking about earlier. You see, my friends, you're going to have to treat other people the way you want to be treated. I'm trying to prepare you for the golden rule next week. I want you to be merciful so that you can obtain mercy. It's not just turning cheeks, but getting angrier and angrier with every turn. It's loving them. It's blessing them and doing good for them and praying for them because those outward actions are the only things that can help engender the inner emotion of love. So even if the first time you don't love them while you are doing good for them, you're kind of grumbling, keep doing it. The Spirit will come. It'll soften your heart. You'll see their humanity as you're doing good for them. You'll realize that they need, there's some good that they need that they're not getting. You'll realize that the bully was bullied himself. And your contention will turn into compassion. And hopefully it doesn't end in mere pity but grows into true charity, where you can love your enemy. So often we treat Christ like an enemy. 
but he only treats us with love. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Well, he laid it down for his enemies too, but never considered them enemies. Friends was all Jesus ever had. And he hopes we can say the same. But again, I can see us bristling in our lesser selves. The natural man would say, that's totally unfair. They don't deserve that kind of love. To which I think the Lord would say, who talked about deserving anything? The law of Moses, yes. <laughs> you give what, you, what people deserve. An eye, eye, tooth, tooth. It's all that kind of sheer reciprocity. That's what justice demands. But I'm coming with mercy and grace to intercede with justice. And you'll be grateful for that in your own sake. Let other be, others be grateful for it too. Adam Miller is an amazing Latter-day Saint philosopher. He's a philosophy professor in Texas and has written some beautiful things. Letters to a Young Mormon was a classic before we stopped using that name. Uh, An Early Resurrection was a beautiful, beautiful take on living in Christ before we die. Uh, his mo most recent work has to do with love. And his approach is fascinating because he poses this philosophical question. That's what philosophers do. And the question was this, what if love is not meant to be a reward? What if love is meant to be a commandment? What if this statement, I mean, it sure sounds like a commandment, right? Love your enemies, bless them, do good to them, do all this. And it's like, and, and what keeps us from doing that is this justice bone down deep within us saying, but they don't deserve it. So isn't it wrong to reward them with the love they haven't earned? To which Adam Miller asks, is that what love is? Is it meant to be merely a reward? And so we give it to people who deserve it. And in fact, we work ourselves to death and we punish ourselves with toxic perf perfectionism in hopes of making ourselves into the type of person that the Lord just might be able to love. But what if that gets it wrong on all counts? And if love really is a commandment, a commandment that God not only gives, but a commandment that God himself keeps. That he loves us even when we're unlovable. And he treats us as friends even when we're acting like an enemy. If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he sent that son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that, that saving, that forgiving, that working, that calling to repentance, the miracles, the healing, teaching, the, the preaching, teaching, healing, if all of that was meant to be exhibit A through Z, infinity, of God's love, for God so loved the world, then love is a commandment God keeps. And God, love is a commandment God asks us to keep, whether or not the person deserves it. Once we make that mental shift, I love my spouse, I love my children, I love my ward members, I love those who attack me, because it makes me feel better <laughs> toward them and toward God. It's just, I feel God's love flow, flow through me toward them, because I know He loves them too. And best of all, I know he loves me too, 
even when I'm undeserving of that love. He may not be able to bless me with all he wants to give me, but I know his love is there no matter what. And so I'm trying to become more like him, not so that he'll love me more, but so that I can love other people more freely and more genuinely. I know he loves me genuinely already. Wouldn't that be an incredible cure for toxic perfectionism? Even as we strive to reach verse 48 and become as perfect as our Father in heaven? It changes everything. Love is not a reward. Love is a commandment. So love. Love your enemies. And then he says in 45 through 47, Why? That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. You see, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, because God is a peacemaker, even towards his enemies. He, God loves atheists, though atheists don't love him. God believes in atheists, though atheists don't believe in him. God loves us all. And to be like father, like son, like, like mother, like daughter, to be that part of the family tree with that level of family resemblance, the, the family resemblance is love. The pure love of Christ, real charity that suffereth long and yet is kind. And it doesn't envy and it seeks not iniquity and it endures all things. That's the love of God. It's undeserved. He doesn't care. Because he does care so much about us. And if we're going to be like him, if we're going to be the children of our Father which is in heaven, then love unconditionally and bless and do good and pray for the people who least seem to deserve it. The way he says it here, for he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. If you're an agricultural society, especially in the Middle East, sun is a good thing and rain is an even better thing. And God gives it. He sends it. And even... <laughs> The wicked watch their flowers grow and rejoice in the gift even if they're oblivious of the giver. It's amazing how good God is in that. He sends rain. He causes his sun to rise. And yes, that's S-U-N. But could we say capital S-O-N as well? Yes, he sent his son out of love for the whole world. Not to condemn, but to claim to help, to heal. So if the people you know are unjust and therefore undeserving, what should we do? Send rain regardless. Shower them with your love. Because as the Lord says, and I love this, especially since it's Matthew recording it, Jesus says, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. And poor Matthew, who's writing this down, what was his profession before apostleship? He was a publican. It's like, ouch, do you have to keep bringing that up? Fine, I'll write it down. It's my former life. I've, I've left it. <laughs> okay. But he's right. Even I, even poor publicans, could treat people well as long as they deserved it. I've sometimes been guilty of what I call parental publicanism. And my wife and I laugh over this phrase. I don't think our children do. But parental publicanism is being patient with children that require no patience. You see how easy that is? 
And there have been times when I have been even-tempered, even-tempered as a father, mad all the time, uh, frustrated. I'm not angry, just frustrated, just irritated. Uh, I've got, it's, and it's not without a cause. It's, I, it's, I have a cause, and, it's, and they are the cause. I'm looking at it. And there are times in my frustration where I'll just kind of mutter under my breath, ah, I'm good with kids that are good. I'm patient with children that need no patience, that don't try my patience. And that's when the parental publicanism hit me. Oh, you're willing to give patience to people who don't need it. Ooh, I'm so impressed with you as a father. <laughs> you see what the Lord's saying to us? Give it to the undeserving. I do, little Mr. Undeserving. Oh, we publicans all. We can be better than that. Through the Lord, who is better than us all. In fact, that's what he's asking for in the final verse. The climax of this incredible crescendo. Verse 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now that could be perfect in the seventh antithesis, which is the one you have to add to the mix. In context, it's perfect in your treatment of other people, which is interesting. Not, this is not perfection in terms of sheer sinlessness, because that ship's already sailed. We've already broken that bridge. And none of us will ever be able to claim perfection along those lines, though Jesus himself could, and yet didn't until he was resurrected in 3 Nephi. You see, in the 3 Nephi version, when he finally gets here, that's when he says, including himself for the first time in this claim to perfection, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I, or your Father who is in heaven, is perfect. Now, Jesus could claim sinlessness the whole time. But even he didn't equate sinlessness with perfection. The scriptures never do. Job was called a perfect man. But he wasn't perfect. Read the whole book. He had some, some imperfections within his perfection. But he was, the trajectory was there. And there were fits and starts and starts and stops and forwards and backs. And, but he'd establish his trajectory and his reliance upon the Lord. Will get me there, especially once I escape the, the, the gravitational confines of planet Earth. God has an eternity to continue perfecting me in Christ, and I trust the process. I don't presume upon that patience. I don't just say, put it on his tab, because that's putting the contrary out of whack. No, this is the life to prepare to meet God. Thank you, Amulek, for that. Caution. But it's not the life to achieve his level of perfection. It's the time to establish trajectory and momentum, which the ages to come will allow me to continue growing up in God. If Christ himself doesn't claim perfection until after the resurrection, there's no need for us to. And no need for us to beat ourselves up as if we were unlovable until we got there. No. God is more than a parental publican. And so for us, he would simply say, it's perfection pending. In fact, that's the exact phrase that our prophet used long, long ago as an apostle in a talk of that title, perfection pending. 
in it. If you haven't noticed, President Nelson loves words. He loves languages. He loves etymology and where words come from. He's a great language learner himself. But he said this in that talk, October of 1995. Are we old enough to remember? In Matthew 5:48, the term perfect was translated from the Greek teleos, which means complete. Teleos is an adjective derived from the noun telos, which means end. The infinitive form of the verb is teleono, which means to reach a distant end, to be fully developed, to consummate or to finish. Remember, the Lord is the author and finisher of our faith. I added that part. Elder Nelson goes on, please note that the word does not imply freedom from error. It implies achieving a distant objective. In fact, when writers of the Greek New Testament wished to describe perfection of behavior, precision, or excellence of human effort, they did not employ a form of teleos. Instead, they chose different words. If that's not a hopeful statement from a prophet of God, I don't know what is. It's not precision or excellence. It's not perfection of behavior. God has other words for that. But for this one, what do you see off in the distance through your telescope? Do you see the telos, the telos, the end of your journey? Oh, off in the, the distances of eternity. When you've come, when you've finally fully grown up in God. That's perfection pending. And that's what the Lord has in store for all of us if we'll just keep coming unto him. Later in that same talk, President Nelson or Elder Nelson said this, We need not be dismayed if our earnest efforts toward perfection now seem so arduous and endless. Perfection is pending. It can come in full only after the resurrection and only through the Lord. It awaits all who love him and keep his commandments. It includes thrones, kingdoms, principalities, powers, and dominions. It is the end for which we are to endure. It is the eternal perfection that God has in store for each of us. That's the perfection of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're still not, I'll say it this way, even if we get there and we've, we've fully achieved Matthew chapter 5, there's still chapter 6 and chapter 7 next week. Even perfection isn't finished there is still yet more to polish up. That's what we'll see next week. And to study Matthew 6 and Matthew 7 in the context of Matthew 5 is an incredible experience. To recognize what work we still have to do, or better said, what work the Lord still wants to do in us and on us and through us. Uh, my dear friends, especially any of you who are using Matthew 5.48 as a club to beat yourself with instead of the Savior's hand reaching down to you from mountain to plain, inviting you to ascend with him. That's what he means by all of this. Blessed are you already. Reread those Beatitudes. Salt and light that will increase in saltiness and in brilliance, if we just allow the Lord to shine through us, growing brighter and brighter into the perfect day. If we'll simply see the bar that we've been clearing 
and I'll allow the Lord to lift us even higher. He stands above. He's set. And he's reaching down to lift us. I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful for his infinite, eternal, unending, and so undeserved love. I feel it. Even at times where I wonder if I should be. I pray you feel it too. I pray that you open your heart to the Spirit, that you'll hunger and thirst after it so that you can be filled with the Holy Ghost, that comforter to all that mourn, he who lifts us higher and makes us holier, all through the Savior, Jesus Christ.